Welcome to the program. Welcome to Friday. It's Larry Fedorik filling in for Mike Farwell, uh, as you know, because we were together yesterday on the show. Mike uh, is on the road with the Rangers. And as you've been hearing, of course, that game tonight in the Sioux. Uh, and uh, the pregame starts at 635 with Mike and uh, and Paul, of course. So uh, enjoy that tonight. But uh, in the meantime, as he is traveling with the Rangers... Here we go. And by the way, I filled in for Mike before on a Friday, but never since Mike has started this uh, All Request Fridays. Okay, so All Request Fridays, uh, if you don't know, because I'm finding this out the way it works, is, uh, you know, this. But we call it bumper music, and it's the music we play when we're coming back to a segment and, you know, the announcement is, it's the Mike Farwell show and all that. And then there's music playing underneath it. And you get to request that music. Uh, you get to call that in. Don't email Mike because Mike is on the road. Uh, uh, so if you just call it in at 519-570-2545, make a request. We'll try and get it on. And I've never done this before. So uh, good luck to me and good luck to you. <laughs> In getting requests on. It's been a long time since I worked a, a, a show where I was taking requests, which I have done in past lives in radio. But uh, so we're going to try that today. See how it works out for us. Okay. All request Fridays. You request some bumper music. Uh, give us a call. 519-570-2545. Now, what else? Oh, um, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I just feel probably should comment because it's a big story a lot of people are covering, although I don't know how much it's going to affect your your day today. But it's interesting that the International Court of Justice in The Hague uh, did make a ruling today on uh, the state of affairs in the war in uh, Israel and Palestine and the Gaza. And um, a ruling and not a ruling, I guess. They, they, they refused to throw the case out, which is what Israel wanted. They didn't outright say genocide. They said Israel must um, increase efforts to avoid genocide and also increase efforts for humanitarian aid. That's the gist of it. And it's interesting, too, because this International Court of Justice, it's it's a United Nations International Court, and it just reminds me, of course, of United Nations. It's a court, and we all know how the court system works. If you're an accused in court and you go through the system and you're found responsible or guilty or whatever the verdict is, um, a person comes and takes you away and and uh, puts you in a room somewhere, confines you. Or if you are released on conditions, uh, then you have to abide by those conditions or else somebody comes and puts you in a room somewhere and locks you away. This court has no jurisdiction in that regard. It has no enforcement. Nobody's coming to take an Israeli ambassador or representative away. Uh, there's... It's I don't know, man. It's I, I feel about it like I do the United Nations. It's great to have uh, these chambers of sober second thought and discussion and people from all over the world and the representatives go and discuss and negotiate. And uh, I guess from that, some good has happened. But for the most part, they have no power. They have no real uh, enforcement. They have no jurisdiction. Um, so I don't know what this is. I don't I don't know what this is. And, and, and I don't know why so much time and energy uh, not to mention uh, pomp and ceremony and money goes towards all of this when at the end of the day it seems somewhat meaningless and people are going to continue to do what they do governments will continue to do what they do despite what an international court of justice says because it doesn't have 
jurisdiction. It doesn't have its own police, its own army, or and imagine what that would be like if it did. So, well, uh, there is that going on today. Meanwhile, um, in Kitchener-Waterloo, a lot to talk about today, and we're going to talk about it on the show. Joining us in a few minutes' time, hope you can stick around. Pam Wolf is going to join us. Uh, Pam, uh, been in the news this week. She is the uh, West Galt uh, Cambridge counselor, regional counselor, and, and uh, proposed an idea for um, what's been called an innovative idea for housing in uh, the region. Uh, actually, Kitchener-Waterloo said, yeah, it's a good idea. Cambridge itself said would not pass it, oddly. Uh, the idea is... And we'll get the details from Pam, but it's basically to use, and I, I think this is genius, use the municipal land, parking lots, other vacant lots uh, for housing development. And the benefit of this is the municipality retains ownership, which means possible future revenue down the road. So uh, we're not just handing land off to a developer or or selling it or doing whatever and, and saying develop housing and make it affordable. Uh, the the region under this sort of idea would stay in control. Anyway, Pam Wolf is going to join us here in just a few minutes' time. Stick around, and we're going to get the details on that. Now, uh, let me skip ahead to um, 10.30, because on, on a related topic, we're going to talk, um, or I guess, hold on, I'm just trying to figure out when, when Diane is on here. I think it's 10.30. Yeah, Diane Freeman is going to be here at 10.30. I just wanted to confirm that with myself here. Uh, she is a city councilor in Ward 4 in Waterloo, and she is talking about a revised fiscal agreement between the province and cities. And this is related because uh, cities are responsible, municipalities, cities, civic governments are responsible for a lot of things that fall under provincial jurisdiction, including housing and housing vis-a-vis low, uh, homelessness. So, um, and it's just, we've talked about it this week. A lot of cities have talked about it. The big city mayors talked about it last year at a conference. It's it's unsustainable because so much is put upon a city when really it's the province, and in some cases the federal government, who should be throwing in money to help the cities because cities have no have no real revenue outside of property taxes. And what they have to do is raise property taxes and then people can't afford to live in a city and yet they want the services and and this model of of budgets and financing is unsustainable a lot of people have said this so it's this innovative idea for housing that pam wolf is going to talk about and then diane freeman later talking about revised fiscal agreements it's it's all related in my mind and she's going to be around later so that's what we're discussing uh locally uh we're also going to talk about the decision this week that the um, emergencies act was unreasonable and should not have been used. That was the judge's ruling. And we're going to look back at uh, the career of Norman Jewison with the film and marketing expert out of the University of Windsor. And, of course, it's our Friday 4 panel today as well. So that discussion coming up. All that and more. But Pam Wolf is coming up next to uh, talk innovative ideas for housing here on City News 570. I'm Larry Fedorik sitting in for Mike Farwell today. Don't forget to catch Mike tonight starting at 6.35 with the pregame uh, as Mike's on the road with the Rangers in the Sioux tonight. A lot of talk this week about innovative ideas for housing in the region. And as I read about the idea, I went, that is innovative. And it sounds uh, 
uh, uh, simple but brilliant to me. I want to get the details on this with someone who, who made this motion and is very involved in this idea. Uh, she is the counselor, regional counselor for West Galt out of Cambridge, Pam Wolf, who joins us now. Hello, Counselor Wolf. Good morning, Larry. Thanks for coming on about this. Let me give you my interpretation of the gist of the idea, and then you can expand on it. It's it's housing on uh, municipal land, and the municipality, the city retains ownership of the land. Is that the 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 basis of it? Yes, so regional land. Right. Right. Yes. So basically, um, we would we are going to be looking at um, basically regional uh, vacant land, uh, regional buildings that we wish to repurpose, and uh, regional parking lots, and uh, using them for uh, affordable housing. How does this differ? Is, is is it usually the land is just sold off or leased off to a developer? Is that what usually happens? Oh, we lost Pam. We lost a phone connection there. Pam Wolf, uh, regional counselor for uh, West Galt out of Cambridge, about this innovative housing idea. And I believe it was Pam Wolf who made the motion. Um, in Kitchener-Waterloo, this idea, this concept was accepted. Oddly, in Cambridge, it was uh, not, to my understanding. But it, what I like about the idea, as I've said before, is if you retain ownership of the land, then uh, there is re- revenue from that because um, a, a lot of the uh, – well, a lot, most, I guess all of housing is uh, incumbent upon a municipality or a region. Right, they're responsible. These these civic municipal governments are responsible for that. And then what happens is, um, a- as we know, the regions or municipalities are not always directly responsible for an influx of people, or um, you know things like housing and homelessness often fall under provincial jurisdiction, and and the money doesn't come. So it seems unfair. Now that's that's a separate but related topic. As I said, we will be uh, talking about that a little bit later. With Diane Freeman, who has provo- uh, proposed a uh, revisal of an agreement, a fiscal agreement between provinces and cities, because of the way it works now, uh, anything that a municipality or a city has to spend money on, uh, they have to look to the taxpayers to get that money back. So um, we don't know. Now, I do we have Pam back? We have Pam. Are you back with us? Yes, I am. All right. We have, uh, no, that's all right. That's all right. Uh, the, uh, the phone ghosts are, are out there. We hope they cooperate for a bit here. So we were talking about, um, the regional land and, and look for these vacant lots or parking lots or existing buildings repurposed for housing. I asked you how it differs from the usual model. I think in the usual model, we haven't been looking at parking lots. Uh, and we haven't necessarily been looking at buildings that we already own. We've looked at uh, vacant land, and uh, that's basically, you know, where our focus has been. And now uh, I think uh, we had Councillor Hamilton's motion uh, in Cambridge, and it uh, sparked a lot of enthusiasm, um, uh, basically around the province. 
uh, both he and I have said we've never got more uh, emails about people enthusiastic about an idea. So um, I think that's the big difference is that we're just expanding uh, our scope for looking at places we can build affordable housing. Does that mean that uh, any income from that housing stays with the municipality or the region? It depends on what we've set up with the um, with the developer. So um, we have, you know, our nonprofits. So basically, uh, the nonprofit might, um, you know, they may be collecting the rent, et cetera, from from that building. But what it will give us is we get to set the rules for what's built on our land. And this is one thing that um, uh, Dr. Brian Doucette mentioned at uh, the council meeting last night, that uh, we don't control um, private developers. But if we own the land, we can say, for instance, if it's a condo that's going in, that it has to be owner-occupied. We can say that we want not just one bedrooms built, we want three bedrooms or four bedrooms, depending on our need. And uh, in the past two nonprofits, um, uh, construction developers haven't, you know, they're at a disadvantage when competing with um, uh, for-profit developers in terms of looking at land. So if we provide this land only basically to nonprofits, uh, that's a you know that's a, a good start there. We also can say that this land always has to be used for affordable housing. We don't necessarily have to say it's a 50-year or a 20-year time frame. So there are a lot of advantages to us um, maintaining control of the, the land, setting the rules, and depending on what's being built there, um, you know we would uh, you know accommodate the builder. During discussions around the, the green belt, a lot of regions and municipalities said, you know, we already have available land to address housing shortages. Do we have the land? Do we have the lots and the, and the properties and, uh, and all of that ahead of us? I think we do. What we do lack is maybe large lots. Right now with um, Build Now, they want um, they, their preference is to have a very large lot so that they can, um, you know, economize in construction. You know, have you know, building several, several buildings is um, more mm-hmm. cost effective. But mm-hmm. what we may offer them is maybe several, you know, a few smaller lots. So you can still use the same construction crew can move from site to site. And I think that's another thing that we we need to do is rather than just waiting for this a really huge project, we need to start uh, immediately and maybe do a small project. So get the shovels in the ground basically mm-hmm. yesterday and build something small, use it as a prototype and go from there. Still plan for some of these bigger projects, but as you know, they you know often take years to you know finally sure. open. So uh, sure. I mean, I just had one thing that's been good about all the publicity you've been given uh, this idea is people are contacting us. Yesterday I was contacted by um, a construction company developer in Guelph who does modular homes and they have designs already for 
several buildings. Wow. Uh, okay. Affordable housing. And they said they could have it built with the given the land in 10 months. So oh, that's I incredible. Know, yeah. Yeah. And I know in Cambridge we have a company that builds modular, you know, modular sure. mo- units in their factory. And also an, another um, developer, private developer, contacted me who's will, wanting to do tiny homes on his property. And I'm thinking it's interesting how this idea, though, as you said, it's simple, building over a parking lot, has really sparked a lot of um, new ideas. And a lot of people sort of coming out of the woodwork to say, hey, oh, sure. have you thought about this? Yeah. Uh, we will watch with interest and and have you back as this develops. Pam Wolf, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Have a great day. Pam Wolf is regional councillor, West Galt, Cambridge, about this innovative housing idea. More in a moment on City News 570. I'm Larry Fedorkin for Mike Farwell. Today, thank you again to Councillor Pam Wolf talking about this innovative idea for housing. As I said earlier, I think this is a related topic at about 1030. Diane Freeman is going to join us, Councillor, and we'll talk about uh, fiscal agreements between provinces and cities, which involve funding for housing, actually, which is why I think it's related. And a lot of people have talked this week about the current funding system, or in some cases, lack of it uh, being unsustainable because cities just have to keep bumping up fees and taxes for residents. And that's it just can't be. There has to be a different funding system that involves provinces and even the federal government. So we'll talk about that. But much to talk about before that. In just a couple of minutes, if you can hang on, we're going to talk about this decision this week of the use of the Emergencies Act back at the truckers' protest as being unreasonable. We'll talk to a public ethics expert on that coming up next on City News. Here's special guest host Larry Fedorik. And uh, from the newsroom, also watching this story of the homicide in Cambridge uh, that was um, discovered as part of a wellness check. I find that a really interesting part of that story. Our reporter, uh, Josh Gorey, is on the scene. We're going to check in with him before the top of the hour. And, of course, uh, through the newsroom, also provide you updates as that story develops uh, throughout uh, the day, the morning, the weekend, as we learn more about that. But I want to get an update from Josh on the scene. We'll do that before uh, 10 o'clock this morning. After 10 o'clock, we're going to look back at the uh, career and life of uh, Norman Jewison, who passed this week at age 97. Uh, yesterday, when I was filling in on the show, we talked about a little bit about ages and things and and uh, people 90 and up and all of that. And Norman Jewison, certainly a very long and productive uh, life and uh and just this uh, amazing Canadian who always gave back to Canada through the film industry. So we'll look at that after 10 o'clock. Uh, right now on the program, this week we heard a ruling by a judge after a um, long sort of, I guess, investigation. And, and a lot of people testified as to the use of the Emergencies Act during the truckers' protest about two years ago now. Almost two years ago now. Isn't that incredible? But... Um, the use of the Emergencies Act was ruled unreasonable and against charter rights. What does that mean? Our guest is Assistant Professor in Public Ethics, also Director for the Center of Public Ethics at Wilfrid Laurier University. John Milroy is joining us. Hello, Professor Milroy. Uh, hey, Larry. How are you? I'm good. How are you? 
Good. No one's ever called me that. So, well, maybe a student or something. So. What? Are, are, I'm, I'm, used not... to, I'm used to Mike calling me John, so that's the... Okay. Uh... <laughs> I was going to call you Director. So Director. <laughs> Director Milroy, which you are, of course. Of course. Yeah. Now, um, what, what I guess is a silly question, but what, is this, what does this mean, unreasonable? Because uh, some of our memory says that nothing was being done. There was a lack of action, and we needed this to, to sort of reel in the truckers' protest. Yet now it's deemed unreasonable. What is your take on that? Well, you have to go back right to, uh, I mean, right to the, the basic principle that is under discussion here. I mean, our police, our courts, our government have enormous power. Uh, I mean, think about it. They can come, you, me, they can take you away. They can put you in prison for the rest of your life. I mean, they're, they have extraordinary power. Uh, that's balanced, of course, by our rights as, as citizens, rights that have existed f- forever, but were codified in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So, you know, that's the world we live in. And the discussion has always been, what if there was some national emergency? What if there was, uh, heaven forbid, a terrorist attack? What if we were invaded? What if there was, uh, 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 you know, we've had a pandemic, but what if it was 10 times worse than, than COVID? What if, you know, the order was breaking down? And we, in fact, needed to give uh, the police, uh, those in authority, more power. And, you know, there used to be something called the uh, War Measures Act. And those of us of a certain age remember that uh, uh, Trudeau Sr., Pierre Trudeau, invoked it in 1970 when there was uh, uprisings in in Quebec. And I remember my parents were very impressed with this. You know, they were going to give additional powers to the government to arrest people, to detain people and things like that. So... Uh, in, in 1988, the, the government of the day said, well, look, the War Measures Act doesn't really comply with the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and things, but we're going to put forward a piece of legislation which will, in those extraordinary circumstances, allow the government to take on these, these uh, extra powers that they might need. And two years ago, to the surprise, I think, of some, <clears throat> the Trudeau government said, all right, we are going to, to take on this, this extra power. We're going to give police uh, the power to uh, uh, take extraordinary measures, to break up peaceful demonstrations, to force tow truck companies to tow away trucks, to break up the blockades at the border, to freeze bank accounts for people that were fundraising. I mean, they're going to be able to, to have more power than they usually have. And what's happened is this judge took a close look at it and said, look, what happened was horrible. It was frustrating. There was a hard time stopping these protests. But at the end of the day, the government didn't need this extraordinary power. Uh, They just needed to get their act together and enforce the laws as they existed. So what happens now? Is there um, is is, is somebody in trouble? (laughs) You know? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a strange court case because uh, uh, the uh, the Emergency Powers Act is is very. Sh- I mean, it's intended to be very short lived. You know, we'll give police extra power until order can be uh, uh, restored. And I think you know, in this case, it lasted for about seven days. So the uh, uh, federal lawyers, the government lawyers, went before the court and said, "Look." Why are we even having this case? You know, it it existed for seven days. It's no longer in force. And the court actually said, no, this is this is important that we look at at, at what happened. 
And they came up with, uh, as I said, a ruling to say, you know what, it, it may be you know, a really horrible situation, but you didn't need these extraordinary powers. And what a lot of people, first of all, in terms of what happens next, uh, the federal government has said they're going to appeal it, so it'll go to the Supreme Court of Canada. It'll be interesting to see what happens. But what a lot of commentators have, have said is that their fear with what happened two years ago is that the uh, the government was going to start doing this all the time. And, you know, mm-hmm. you see a parallel with the notwithstanding clause. I mean, you know, the idea that you could suspend certain rights in the Constitution, everyone said, well, that'll never happen or it'll happen in the rarest of circumstances. Now everybody seems to be using it, uh, uh, you know, at the, at the provincial level, certainly. So a lot of commentators have said, you know what, once they get a taste of the forbidden fruit, are we going to see every time there's uh, demonstrations, every time there's uh, uh, some issues or problems that the government can't deal with uh, uh, in an in a expedited way, in an elegant way, are they just going to bring in the Emergencies Act? And what this court case, I think, did is send a very, very clear message that the Emergencies Act is there for the invasion, the terrorists, as, you know, as I say, heaven forbid, hopefully right. none of that ever happens. Uh, you know, right. the, the horrible natural disaster, the pandemic, you know, the COVID times 10 kind of pandemic, that's what it's there for, not for, um, you know, I, I don't want to be flipped, but you know, I, I was going to say some guys in bouncy castles, and it was more than that. I mean, there was what was happening at the sure. borders. Um, there was a fact they found a, some a cache of weapons at one of the borders. But as the judge points out, the RCMP actually found that cache, arrested the people, took action before this uh, emergency act came into place. So they've they've got the tools to do it. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's certainly a really interesting uh, ruling, and it'll be interesting to see what the Supreme Court says. For sure, for sure, John. I'm up against time here, but really interesting. Thank you for the time today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. John Milroy, Assistant Professor of uh, Public Ethics, uh, Director for the Center of Public Ethics at Wilfrid Laurier University. More on this and your thoughts in a moment on City News 570. A lot of commentators have said, you know what, once they get a taste of the forbidden fruit, are we going to see every time there's demonstrations, every time there's some issues or problems that the government can't deal with in an expedited way, in an elegant way, are they just going to bring in the Emergencies Act? That was the logic there. I'm Larry Fedorik sitting in for Mike Farwell and a great conversation there with John Milroy, uh, Associate Professor in uh, Public Ethics from Wilfrid Laurier University and a guest you well know on the Mike Farwell Show. But we were talking about this judge's decision this week about using the Emergencies Act on the truckers' protest two years ago was uh, unreasonable. I, I I understand that ruling, do you? I mean, it's... Um, for example, and I, and we ran out of time, but there's a parallel, a, a bit of a parallel. I, I have a, a, an acquaintance on Toronto police service and they were talking about the banning of the protests on, um, the Avenue road overpass on the 401 in Toronto. And, uh, I was hearing a little bit about it, how you just can't protest there, but I have a right to protest. No, you don't. And that was that that came from Toronto police. That was not, and I get I get it. That's not an emergencies act where uh, you're going to protest. We'll close your bank account. We'll do all these other things. These investigative powers that we have, 
but there's there's an ability there to say you can't protest here because of public safety. Uh, it, well, I, that's the main one, but other reasons. So that's already available to police. And they do have a lot of power, as John Melroy said. But this Emergency Measures Act was one step above. But again, I go back to, and, and tell me if the memory of this is incorrect, nothing was being done. And, and not, not in Ottawa, at least, which was the, the big national center and the international embarrassment that we could do nothing in Ottawa. And it was completely disruptive. This is regardless of what side of the issue you fall on, that the protest was completely disruptive. And at some point you could make the case that it was a threat to public safety because people were throwing marbles down on the truckers and the truckers were honking. It was, it shut down business. It shut down the, the downtown economy. It was, it was their protest became unreasonable. I'm not saying that justifies the Emergencies Act. I'm saying that should have justified more action than we had. And if we remember Ottawa, not Alberta or the border at Windsor or anything, if we remember Ottawa, everybody was scared to move. Um, the Ottawa police were like, help us. OPP were like, ooh. And, and, you know, the prime minister said as much that Doug Ford was doing nothing. Um, this is a provincial, it became a provincial jurisdiction because he was, he was ahead of, uh, an election in 2022 and he didn't want to offend a lot of the conservative base that might have voted for him, uh, by moving in with the, you know, the OPP army, so to speak. <laughs> so no, everybody seemed to be somewhat paralyzed in whose jurisdiction is this because, you know, in places like Australia, there is um, there is a police that takes care of the capital, and they have the they have the force. It's just like January sixth in Washington D.C. Well, is it the Washington police? Is it the is it the National Guard? Who's who's coming in here? Like before they could decide, it was it was almost too late, so to speak. Right. So the the lack of inaction and and and. Eventually, somebody said, well, Emergency Measures Act forces our police forces to to act. Again, it might have been unreasonable, but we also should remember back then there was inaction. Again, this decision will be appealed, and as John Milroy and I talked about, it goes to the Supreme Court of Canada eventually, which is months or even years away. Uh, I got time for a quick call here from uh, Steve. Steve, go ahead. Well, you, you, you laid out some interesting points there, and yeah, I'm sure it was disruptive. But I would just like to point out, because it was conveniently left out, that the whole time they were amassing out west, the media, for whatever reason, was misrepresenting what they were about. Like originally, when they started massing, everybody said it was about conditions and highway safety and stuff like that. It was absolutely ridiculous. But more importantly, they knew they were coming to protest his government. And I mean Trudeau. So I'll ask, how many times... Did Trudeau meet with the truckers or their collective and try to negotiate or try to even understand what it was that they were there for? And I think you're probably going to say the answer is zero. And a lot of that blame lays on him. I know it was it was a popular idea to shift it over to Doug Ford because it's in his forum. But they were there for Trudeau. The least he could have done was meet with them and try to negotiate or even just listen. But he was above that. And a lot of that blame goes on him. 
All right, Steve, I accept that. Uh, he or at least a top representative at least come out on the steps. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, a lot of times that goes a long way. I, and when I, I'm not putting it on Doug Ford, by the way. I just meant that when it came time to to get the police and start moving things about, there there was inaction on Doug Ford. But I agree with Steve. It was there. It was it was a protest in Ottawa about the federal government, and they could have done more to um, to at least appear to be listening. Uh, more in a moment here on City News five seventy. I'm Larry Fedorik filling in for Mike. Make sure and join Mike tonight starting at 6.35 in the pregame for the uh, Rangers game at uh, Sioux, in the Sioux. Uh, that's uh, tonight at 6.35. In the meantime, we're going to talk about Norman Jewess and after 10 o'clock this morning and after 10.30, Diane Freeman is going to join us, counselor. Uh, she's proposing a new fiscal agreement between the provinces and the cities. So am I by the way. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. Also today, watching in the newsroom and watching, uh, sort of keeping the ear out of this homicide last night in Cambridge that uh, was discovered uh, after, a, uh, I think, a wellness call. And uh, Josh has been out there. Josh Gorey has been out on the scene and is now back with us. Uh, Josh, can you fill us in on what we know so far? Hey, good morning, Larry. So that's right. So police responded to the area of uh, Fletcher Circle in Cambridge. Uh, that's in the um, uh, near Guelph Avenue and the Hesper Road area. And you're right, they did respond for a wellness check. Now, when they arrived at the area around 925 last night, um, they say that they found a 61-year-old woman um, dead and they have taken a 57-year-old man in into custody and he was found at the address and and cause of death for the 61 year old woman has uh, that been released uh cause of death has not been released yet uh we just got the information on the ages uh within the last hour a uh, few hours or so now they are uh, now the two people involved um are believed to have known one each other and right now there are no concerns for public safety and i just got back from the studio about 20 minutes ago and when i left police were still on the scene and I imagine that will be a uh, if there's an arrest and a person in the custody, it's a crime scene. I, I'm I'm assuming, and that means it'll they'll be there for a while. Absolutely, yeah. Like there, there are media releases officially designating it as a homicide. Oh, okay. So that's already been. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. Um, so when do we expect any more information, or do we today even? Uh, we're still waiting on some information to come in, but we're hoping for more information today. But in the meantime, we're just waiting on one of the regional police to come up with more information as the day goes on. And again, good point about no concerns for public safety. Uh, so that's important to keep in mind for people, uh, everywhere, but certainly in that neighborhood. Oh yeah, absolutely. And some of the people I were talking to on the scene, they were quite shocked and worried to, when they heard about what was going on. And one person I even talked to this morning said that he didn't even know until earlier this morning. When, when he saw everything. Yeah. Well, Josh, thank you so much for the reporting. Appreciate it. No worries. Thank you, Larry. Josh Gorey, who was on the scene uh, all morning and uh, now uh, back in the studio awaiting more information. Uh, a wellness check, isn't that, that's a curious part for me, if they're already kind of aware that a wellness check uh, was needed there and then go and they find a homicide. Um, well, and it's, you know, people, it's interesting, and I'm not being flip here, but people never suspect it, their neighborhood. It, 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 that's just a very common kind of reaction. It's not here. Oh, that happened here. Um, and it, it is very sad. We'll continue to follow the story. As I said, we're going to look back uh, 
at the uh, career and the real Canadianism, if you will, of Norman Jewison, who passed this week, filmmaker. That's coming up next here on City News 5. And here is special guest host, Larry Fedorik. I love that they call me a special guest host. I'm just happy to be a guest host. But, you know, it's always nice to be special, isn't it? Isn't it nice to be special? Uh, uh, Mike, uh, tonight, 635, as you've been hearing, we'll have the pregame. Uh, that's why Mike is away. He's traveling with the team. And when those when those long road trips happen, like uh, all the way to the Sioux, then um, they need a they need a special guest host. So happy to be here. Uh, coming up on the program, I've been talking about this because earlier on we talked to Pam Wolf about this innovative housing idea for Kitchener Waterloo that's really capturing the imagination of a lot of other cities and municipalities and regions. Uh, just a brilliant idea for housing. And in a related matter, I think Diane Freeman is going to join us in about a half an hour. She's city councilor, Ward 4, Waterloo. She's proposing a new fiscal agreement between provinces and cities because the a, a lot of the things, including housing, uh, fall on the responsibility of the cities when really the province should be, should be chiming in with uh, dollars. So we'll talk about that at 1030. This week, Norman Jewison left us 97 years old. And uh, Norman Jewison uh, did so much in Hollywood, but did his movies, somebody said that it was well over 50, something like 55 Oscar nominations that his movies received over a decades-long career. And a lot of Canadians have been successful in Hollywood in front of behind, in front and behind the camera. But, but they, they sort of end up in Hollywood, which is fine. And the fact that they're Canadian becomes an answer to a trivia question. You know, Norman Jewison was always part of the Canadian film fabric as well, even though he was a very successful Hollywood director. Uh, let's talk more about this. Our guest is uh, marketing in the marketing faculty of the School of Business at the University of Windsor. Vincent Georgie joins us. Hello, Vincent. Larry, good morning. Uh, thanks for coming on to talk about Norman Jewish and what a career. And as I mentioned, uh, was integral to development of Canadian film and Canadian directors and creative people in film. Yeah, he, he most certainly was. I mean, as you perfectly laid out in your intro, you know, yes, he had a big Hollywood career, but the thrust really of his initiative and his work in that was very much about building the Canadian landscape and specifically creating the Canadian Film Centre uh, where uh, emerging filmmakers are trained, they're mentored, there's internships, all these types of pieces, residences, all this type of stuff um, to actually build a, a really proper ecosystem here for the development and sustainability of, of, of talent here in our own country. Uh, that was really Joseph's real you know, passion project as a career. He was intensively involved with it and, and you know, generously funded it through many, many years. Uh, he's very, very committed to that on top of, you know, obviously being a tremendous filmmaker. Uh, you know, he himself received seven Oscar nominations. Uh, he's, you know, major, major talent and, and really directed films over four decades. You know, a really, really significant talent. It's certainly lost. This week, a lot of people mentioned In the Heat of the Night, which was an Oscar winner, uh, Moonstruck. Um, there were, but I, I, so I went through his filmography and I'd, uh, just to refresh some of the others, he did the original Thomas Crown Affair. I just wanted to mention that because that was just a cool caper movie. 
Yeah, he he did. You know, Jewison was interesting. I had the good pleasure of interviewing him. So I am the executive director and chief programmer of the Windsor International Film Festival. And at our 10th anniversary, 10 years ago, uh, Jewison received our first Lifetime Achievement Award and uh, interviewed him on stage and talked you know, so much about his career. And what was so fascinating in the pre-interview and then the on-stage interview was the sheer breadth of his career. He was more of a Swiss Army knife type of director. You know, as you perfectly pointed out, he did the original Thomas Crown Affair. He also directed Fiddler on the Roof. He directed Jesus Christ Superstar. Then he directed, you know, The Hurricane, the boxing film with Denzel Washington. He did Moonstruck with, with Cher and Nicolas Cage. He was, he, he was so capable of telling so many different kinds of stories. He definitely was not a filmmaker that was ever pigeonholed. Um, you know, he, he's, his, his, the breadth of his talent was very, very significant. But I do remember very, very clearly when we were, when we were celebrating him, uh, he very, very much wanted to make sure that there was a special screening of In the Heat of the Night that would play at the festival. Um, it, it was a film I, I would suspect really actually meant probably the most to him overall. Mm. Um, that was the film, of course, The Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier. It was definitely one that was close to Jewison's heart. Right, really was. And and uh, at a time when this was um, this was bubbling uh, in society, and he just did this this real, in some cases, a real in your face film about it, but also made a lot of points. Listen, the the subtle difference I think here, and Vincent wanted to get your take on this, is he, the Canadian Film Center is not just a place where Canadians can go to become good enough to go to Hollywood. It was a, it's it's building the industry in this country as well. I think that was the difference. Very much. Yeah. Oh no no. That 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 that's that's precisely right. It, it was really the goal was ideally that these filmmakers would make excellent films in this country and continue to raise the the already good quality of films that we have here. And that's very much what the mission was. If, if people ended up working in Hollywood or in other countries, really, that was all fine and dandy. That was absolutely not the goal. Um, and and it, it's really the pillar of. Uh, sort of film training and film, again, the mentorship piece and the resonances and all this type of stuff, it, it's still a very, very high repute and, and critical. And that was something that like he founded. Like That whole thing wouldn't have happened without him. Um, and I had the good pleasure of actually bumping into to Norman probably three, four years ago, just before the pandemic. Um, and, you know, still as active as ever, as engaged as ever, and, and you know, still dedicated very, very much to the creation of an excellent infrastructure for filmmakers within our own country. It was very, very important to him. It wasn't just a fluff piece or something that was, you know, purely, um, you know, philanthropic. It, it, was, it was very much tied to, to who he was as a man. It's difficult here, and I'm apologizing for the time, because the man was 97, over four decades of film, the Canadian Film Center, a lifelong project, all of that. To kind of do justice to that in a few minutes, we can't. But let's just let's just end by saying um, his work continues, the Film Center continues, this is, a, this is a legacy that will continue? Very much, very much indeed. Okay. Uh, thank you for your time, Vincent. Enjoy the conversation. It's my pleasure. Take care. Vincent Georgi is marketing faculty at uh, the School of Business at the University of Windsor and also director of the Windsor Film Festival, talking about Norman Jewison. We can talk more about this in a moment. After a short break, this is City News 570. I had the good pleasure of actually bumping into Norman, still as active as ever, as engaged as ever, and still dedicated very, very much to the creation of an excellent infrastructure for filmmakers within our own country. It was very, very important to him. It wasn't just a fluff piece or something that was purely philanthropic. It was, it was very much tied to, to who he was as a man. That's Vincent Georgie, Windsor Film Festival and uh, also uh, School of Business at uh, U Windsor. 
talking about Norman Jewison, who we lost this week at age 97, and right up till up till nearly the end, still very active. I, I uh, at 97, I think I also saw a clip of him being interviewed at the Toronto International Film Festival last September. So he's 96, still out there talking about film and talking about Canadian film, of course. I'm Larry Fedorikin for Mike Farwell. One of the things we talked about is is the Canadian Film Center, which he founded many, many years ago. And and I, I've never confirmed this, but I, everybody talked about Norman Jewison having a place out near Bolton, right? That was, it's not that he just sort of lived, breathed Hollywood all the time, although he could, because he was an acclaimed director, Academy Award winning director. Uh, all these different kinds of films from Jesus Christ Superstar to Fiddler on the Roof to Heat of the Night to Moonstruck to A Soldier's Story to The Thomas Crown Affair. And, and not just a cookie-cutter director. I mean, you know, one of the things Cher said after his passing was, I never would have got an Oscar if you didn't get that performance out of me. I mean, he knew how to work with actors. Uh, he he knew where to point the camera. That's a lot. That's a lot. By the way, I read that a long time ago. I was like, that's a lot about about film is well where do we point the camera that's it you know and as an amateur photographer i'm like that's the first thing he's like where to point the camera and, and then after that you get what you get uh but a brilliant individual and and through all that founded and years ago this wasn't a recent thing that he started as a legacy project this was one of his first initiatives after becoming successful was this canadian film center which is still very active and will continue on through his uh, um surviving family where um you you um you ensure that canadian film industry and all the bright people who want to be in film uh have a place to go and learn and and make their movies and as i said with vincent not just a school to get good enough so i can go to hollywood although if that happens great for you but also that you can make films in this country and of course the the industry that is film i was involved a few years ago as a matter of fact the film just started popping in film festivals last year and it was pretty cool. I was involved with uh, some independent filmmakers. Um, I've talked about it on the show before. I don't want to talk about it much, but just uh, they asked me to play a part in a movie and I played it and it was the most fun I ever had. But these, these people are independent filmmakers and just that they were able to have the resources and, and, and the, um, the the background of Canadian filmmakers to say we can do this in Canada and make a film in Canada that has a bit of a Canadian storyline as well. And it's just, it was very, very cool. You know, I just thought it was great. And Norman Jewison, wow. Uh, to, to 97, another amazing, you know, to make films for that about over four decades. And then also, as I said, the kind of live part of the year, I assume, I guess in, uh, in the Bolton area, uh, as I said, I never confirmed that, but I have friends in Bolton who always said, oh, yeah, Norman Jewison is a place out here, you know. You know those places where you get out more into the countryside and you see these sprawling manses with all this beautiful land? He probably had one of those, I'm going to assume. But uh, just a, a, an amazing career. And Vincent talking about sitting with him and interviewing him in in coordination with the Windsor Film Festival. Um and that's the other thing, by the way. Windsor has a film festival. Kitchener Waterloo has a film festival. You know, it's not just TIFF. It's 
it's it's because of the the growing Canadian film industry that is that has been egged on and helped by people like Norman Jewison that we're able to have annual film festivals in Kitchener Waterloo um and see interesting, you know, anything from features to documentaries to short films. It's, it's, it's all part of it, you know? Uh, and I guess, yeah, at a time we, we have to look, I think at Hollywood as kind of the capital, the world capital of films, I guess, you know, and I know we like to call ourselves Hollywood North and all that kind of stuff. And I, that's great. Um, and, and, that, and that's probably true. Cause that's where all the, that's where they built the factories, right? So that's where the industry is centered a lot of the time. But to see the industry grow in other places and, and for, uh, I think we admire any Canadian who succeeds on the world stage, but never forgets Canada and comes back to get to Canada. Isn't that, isn't that the way it goes with people in film and music and, and, and the arts and even sports in general, where they, they're still Canadian, damn it, you know, and, and we love that. We love that. And love Norman Jewison. Uh, and, and by the way, as I mentioned yesterday, this is irrelevant to any story, but it's just a quirky little factoid. Norman Jewison, not Jewish. He even said himself at one point, I think they let me make Fiddler on the Roof because they assumed I was Jewish. And, uh, was not. <laughs> so he, he's talked about that at times over his career as well. So. Uh, it's not just me saying it. He was talking about it, too, as well, in his lifetime. Uh, more in a moment. I'm Larry Fedorik in for Mike Farwell on City News 570. Be right back. Larry Fedorik in for Mike Farwell. Welcome back. We were just talking this half hour about Norman Jewison and our guest from Windsor uh, Film Festival was talking about meeting Norman Jewison. I never did get a chance. I always wanted to sort of bump in, like, in, in media, sometimes you get an opportunity to be at an event where somebody like a Norman Jewison might be, and you can work your way through a line, at least say hello. It's always kind of cool. I did meet Ivan Reitman. I think I've shared the story, but I'll share the short version of Ivan Reitman, who we lost about a year and a half ago, a great film director, Canadian, from Toronto. And um, years ago, years and years ago, the 80s, uh, you know where Bell Lightbox is in Toronto and all? You know what it is in the theater district? Well, his family, Ivan Reitman's family, his father owned that land. He used to have a car wash there. And in my position at a radio station, we wanted to do a promotion with the car wash. So I was sent to meet the owner. I had no idea. I had a name, but I didn't know anything. And I went to meet this this gentleman. And he had movie posters up in his office for uh, meatballs and stripes and uh, heavy metal. And I didn't think the movie posters sort of jibed with this older gentleman in a blazer and tie, but I said, oh, whatever. And uh, he didn't want to do the promotion with us, but he just wanted to talk about these films. And, and he goes, that's my son, Ivan Reitman. Ivan, you know, Ivan Reitman. I didn't follow directors, so I was like, oh, okay. And I went back to the office, and I was like, oh, I, I, that guy's Ivan Reitman's dad, and uh, he doesn't want to do the promotion. But uh, but I just remember being struck of how this guy just loved his son, Ivan, was so proud of his son, the film director, Ivan. Ivan, Ivan was this, I, this, Ivan, Ivan, Ivan. And I thought, boy, if I ever meet Ivan Reitman, I'm going to tell him about that day that I met his father and how much his father loved him and, and was so proud of him. So uh, a couple of years ago, I'm in Kensington Market, and I look at a couple, and I go, that's Ivan Reitman. And he runs into a store, and the woman he's with turned out to be his wife of like 40 years. I said, excuse me, is that Ivan Reitman? She goes, yeah, yeah. And I was like, do you think it would be okay if I said hello to him? And she goes, Absolutely. 
So he's gone like for 10 minutes. She, she actually phones him at one point and says, where are you? Somebody's waiting here to say hello to you. Can you hurry up? And I was like, no, it's okay, really. I'm just a person. Uh, he comes out. We say hello. I tell him as quickly as I can my Reitman story. And and we had a little exchange. It was really nice. It was nice. I phoned a friend. And I used to go, you know that Ivan Reitman story that I told you? And she goes, yeah, yeah. I said, I just told my Ivan Reitman story to Ivan Reitman. Really? And I said, yeah, it was so fun. Such a nice guy. And then, um, and then about a year and a half later, he passed. And I felt like I lost a friend at that point. It wasn't a case of just a film director, a known film director, who went on to do, you know, the Ghostbusters and all that, and then have a son who became a famous film director and all that. It was just um, a story that I'd had for many years that I got to share with the actual subject of the story. Those kinds of things are rare. So occasionally you meet, I never met Norman Jewish, I met Ivan Reitman. That's my Ivan Reitman story shared with you quickly here today. Uh, I'm looking forward to our next conversation because this is something that has been in my thoughts for a long time about the relative um, unfairness of the way funding is, um, or let's say funding agreements are between, say, provinces and cities. Uh, you might want to include the federal government in the chain of money, but yeah, you can. And how much burden is placed on cities for housing and other services uh, when really some of those money should be coming from the province. Diane Freeman is proposing a new fiscal agreement between provinces and cities. She is a ward for counselor in Waterloo, and she's going to join us next here on City News. Here's special guest host, Larry Fedorik. And on the Mike Farwell Show today, we will be uh, hosting the Friday 4 panel. That's coming up between 11 and noon with our panel. Uh, I'll remind you, and I'm sure you you know these people. I've actually, uh, filling in on Friday, uh, talked to some of these people on the panel before. So uh, you know these people, Yvonne Fernandez, Janice Jim, David uh, Marskell will join us. And we have a whole series of topics to run through for an hour back and forth. On the Friday 4 panel at noon, it's the 12 o'clock talk back and also attempting uh, there to do uh, all request Fridays, which is something Mike has started recently, which I have not done before filling in. So this is where you get to request some of the uh, the bumper music that we play. We call it bumper music. Uh, the music you hear coming back to a segment and you get to request it. So we'll try and honor some of those requests as well. That's all coming up in the program. Uh, right now, we have a city councilor for Ward 4, Waterloo, that is proposing a revised fiscal agreement between the provinces and cities, something I think is is long overdue, a new fiscal agreement. Uh, that councilor is Diane Freeman, who joins us now. Hello, Councilor Freeman. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Well, thank you. Uh, this is something that's been in my mind a lot, especially lately when when uh, I, I know out of Toronto they said taxes had to go up and the, the issue of funding for cities came up and how the current agreements are unsustainable. Is, is, is that a strong enough word or too strong a word to describe the agreements now, unsustainable? Oh, they're absolutely unsustainable. The, the property tax base has already been overburdened paying for things that should be paid for by higher levels of government through easier methods such as an employment tax or or even a sales tax of, of some ilk. 
a lot of things that happen in a country and in a province end up being the responsibility of a municipality or a city. Uh, and I think that's yeah. part of your contention as well, right? There's many services that that the city is responsible for that a province should really fund. Oh, absolutely. And they've been downloaded over and over and over again. Even if you look at roads that, that traditionally would have been provincial roads, they've now been all downloaded to municipalities to bear responsibility for with essentially no funding. I think I think I, I don't know if you said or I read an article uh, about it was a third of services provided uh, by cities should be provincial, a one third. I'm not sure what the number is, and that could have come from the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. Right. OK. Oh, no, actually, it, you're right. A third of municipal spending in Ontario is for services in areas of provincial responsibility and expenditure. It's one of the whereas pieces in my um, proposed motion to council. Sorry about that. So your motion, um, is it just asking for a new agreement or are you into specifics or is there, are there numbers attached to this motion? The motion is in support of the Association of Municipalities of Ontario who have taken a with this government to advocate on behalf of all municipalities in Ontario for a new fiscal framework. Uh, this is not uh, the first, you're not the first person to sort of suggest this, right? Even big city mayors last year at a conference said it's time for something different. You know, I was on the board for the Association of Municipalities of Ontario for almost eight years and dating back to when I was first elected in 06, the, it was recognized that the property tax base was being overburdened by services that should be paid for by other levels of government. So there's the ask of the provincial government is not new, but it's becoming a crisis because this particular government has continued to download services that historically had been uploaded with the previous government. And what is the response or has there been any lately from the provincial government? The has been slow. Um, you know, the, the provincial government has actually made things, this government has made things even more challenging for municipalities through the use of some legislative tools related to planning um, where Essentially, the municipalities have to even give back some of the resources that they would traditionally collect. As an example, I don't know, we we have yet to see regulations as it relates to the changes around development charges in municipalities. And if growth cannot pay for growth because the Development Charge Act is amended in such a way that municipalities lose resource to acquire financing, I have no idea how to ask the current tax base to pay for things like that. And just to clarify, and and even for me, for everybody else, but taxes, property taxes are the main source of revenue. I mean, we pay water bills and we pay parking tickets, I guess, and, and things here and there, but, you know, library fee, whatever. But I mean, the property taxes, that's the big revenue. Oh, yeah. In, in fact, we don't pay necessarily fees for libraries other than through yeah, the tax true. base yeah. because it's acquired that way. Uh, and it, it's completely unsustainable as 
as citizens continue to age, we see changing demographics and people are on fixed incomes. Um, the impact assessment hasn't been updated for homes in a number of years. This government has frozen that. So when when people's properties become reassessed based on the current real estate market, property taxes are, are going to go up yet again because of the, the assessed values of homes. And and so, you know, people kind of sit with bated breath and say, gee, I, I'm I'm at the extent of my ability to pay for things and and this just keeps going up and up. It's 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 not it's absolutely not sustainable. And I, I worry deeply about it. I mean sure. the city's looking at significant increases in property taxes this year because we're not immune to the inflation rates as a municipality, the construction price index and the cost to undertake construction and even rehabilitation. I'm not talking new stuff. I'm just talking about rehabilitating what we have has has gone up too. So um it's it's a huge challenge and, and construction rates are inflation is higher than inflation. So so the kinds of things that the city has to pay for cost more than what people are even seeing on on inflation on things like food. And your motion goes forth Monday? It does and I'm I'm right. really hopeful that my colleagues on council will support this and uh, support um, what we're trying to do here which is is uplift the Association of Municipalities of Ontario in their ask to the province. Uh, Diane Freeman, thank you for your time today. Good luck. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate your time. Diane Freeman is City Councillor, Ward 4, Waterloo. More on this topic in a moment on City News 570. When people's properties become reassessed based on the current real estate market, other taxes are going to go up yet again because of the assessed values of homes. And so people kind of sit with bated breath and say, gee, I, I'm at the extent of my ability to pay for things and just keep going up and up. It's absolutely not sustainable. I'm Larry Fedorkin for Mike Farwell, and I just spoke to Diane Freeman, as you heard there. She is City Councilor, Ward 4 for Waterloo. and. Uh, that's her motion that we were talking about. It's going forth on Monday for a new fiscal agreement between the provinces and the cities. And this has been in the news a lot lately uh, where things like housing, housing is the big one. People talk about housing a lot. And, you know, of course, the homelessness that plagues so many communities, uh, no longer just a big city problem, right? It's everywhere, as we know. Uh, the housing homelessness... Uh, falls on to the city. Earlier on, we're talking to Pam Wolf. I, I call this a related topic about a new idea for housing where municipal land is used and the municipality or the city retains ownership of the land, whether it's a parking lot or a vacant lot or a building that's repurposed, where they retain the ownership and it's developed into housing and then they can still own the land, which is a little more um, sustainable Perhaps, and when I say profitable, it's just, I shouldn't say profitable. I should say it's income for a city um, so that maybe they don't always have to raise a property tax or, or other fees that they, they charge for services in a city. And, and you know, we've heard this term a lot. And I'm not, you know, in, in this, people have criticized this current provincial government 
for downloading a lot of these responsibilities onto the municipalities. So that's the term you always hear, downloading, uploading, downloading, uploading. What does that mean? Well, it basically means um, the the short version of it is, is that a province or a provincial leader or provincial government might say, all right, this is your responsibility now. And what we're not going to provide any funding for it. It's just you take care of these roads and this housing and this, these services and cities who can't run deficits, can't borrow money, nor should they maybe. Right. But they go, well, where's the money for this? I guess we have to go to the people and we all understand we pay our taxes for the services uh, that we uh, have living in a city. But what happens is people can no longer afford to live in the city that they picked partly because of affordability. <laughs> and where do they go? They go somewhere else. They go further, further, further. Uh, and then suddenly you can't afford to live in Toronto. You live here. So now you can't afford to live here. So you live there. You can't afford to live in Kitchener. So you move there and you can't afford to live in Hamilton. So you go there and it, and it just has to stop somewhere. And it's the responsibility of this, of, uh, you know, I, I call it a money chain from the top down, just because a province or a federal government may want to say, Hey, we kept taxes low and we didn't, um, uh, raise taxes and, and we kept our fiscal responsibilities and, and all those things means generally means something got cut back. And what got cut back? Well, it got passed on to the city and the city has to raise the taxes. So they're not popular. Meanwhile, it's the system that's unsustainable. And that's why I think Diane Freeman is not alone. And, and Kitchener Waterloo is not alone as a city or a municipality to say, this agreement is is not working. Is not working for us. So, we need a new agreement, and and more and more regions are calling for it. So, if this passes on Monday, I guess it'll go up, be kind of kicked up, and hopefully somebody from the province will react positively. Here's Ted. Ted, go ahead. You're on City News five seventy. Yeah, hi, Larry. I I just wanted to say I I can't disagree in principle. Um, right. I've been involved in municipal politics and uh, provincially with AMO and so on. Um, I want to just speak to this political ploy that Freeman is using, I don't know for what motivation, but it's redundant. And, uh, you know, she she mentions AMO is already, you know, making this case, and I think it's a good case, but... She is well known for her tax and spend philosophy, uh, and I don't know if she's just trying to disguise it. She and other councillors in Waterloo and in this region, you know, are looking for defenses, you know, to defend their ultra-high and incredibly wasteful spending and their uh, lack of commitment to rein in spending and be more efficient and Diane is one of the councillors who's been a problem with respect to the high taxes in the city of Waterloo. And I live in the area. So okay. I, I, I'm well, you know, I'm, I'm right. well versed with respect to the situation. But this is just a, simp, a, a silly, redundant uh, motion for whatever personal reasons that she's got to bring this forward, and maybe it's to disguise her support for the extravagant tax increases in the city of Waterloo. Those right. are my thoughts with respect Interesting. to the in- 
this individual uh, motion. The larger issue, I understand, and it needs to be fixed. All right, Ted, that's a great call. Thank you so much for your uh, outlook on that particular thing. We'll talk more about this in a moment. City News 570, be right back. I'm Larry Fedorkin for Mike Farwell. Mike traveling with the Rangers this weekend, and you'll hear him tonight at 635 on the pregame with Paul uh, up in the Sioux, and then uh, game time just after 7, all tonight on City News 570, home of the Rangers. Go Rangers! Uh, we just an interesting call from Ted, I thought, about the motivation behind uh, Diane Freeman's motion to council this coming Monday, um, asking for a new fiscal agreement uh, between the provinces and cities. That is much needed. And I think Ted said so much. He agrees on principle and questioned the motivation of Diane Freeman. I don't know. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't know Diane Freeman's motivation. Perhaps I should have asked her directly that. But I think had I asked her, she would have said what she already said which is things have got to change. This is unsustainable. Uh, beyond that, as I said, I don't know, but the, many people are in agreement. I, and I mentioned the big city mayors at a conference last year pretty much said the same thing, enough downloading onto the cities and municipalities and the regions, enough downloading because uh, it's become, and there, there is that figure there of about a third, one-third of uh, services provided by a city is really the responsibility of the province. And I, I don't appreciate the province not spending that money uh, and then taking credit for, I don't know what they might take the credit for, of we're not raising taxes, we spend responsibly, we cut back on spending, we cut back. Yeah, you cut back. You know, really, things are going to cost what they cost, and somebody's got to pay, so... We want our services, we want our lives in our communities that we enjoy, that we chose, based partly on affordability, and we understand that things are going to cost a little more, and living wages need to go up a little bit, and so on and so forth, but it's it's somebody's got to pay for it. It's not like, well, the province is going to pay for it, so the city has to, so the city has to raise their taxes. Well, if the city didn't have to raise their taxes, the province might have to bump up their tax a little bit, which might be easier for them to do. I don't know. It's very complicated. Economy, uh, economics, not an exact science by any stretch of the imagination. So, and it's there's an ebb and flow to it, and it's a lot of it's based on spending. So uh, it it's not a, the easiest fix but uh, I think we can all agree, uh, as even Ted did when he called, regardless of what he thinks Diane Freeman is is saying or doing elsewhere, is that the system now doesn't work for cities and municipalities. And many have said so, not just Kitchener-Waterloo, but Hamilton, Toronto, all, just throughout the province, they've said, this doesn't work. We need a new method of funding. So if one more motion goes forward by a city council that gets passed on to government to say, yeah, we also think this doesn't work, then good. Then it's just another voice that has been offered to them to say we need some kind of new system. Because, you know, enough voices, enough people say, and that tends to, well, sometimes change policy. It's uh, Friday on the Mike Farwell Show. I'm Larry Fedorik. Uh, that means we're going to do our Friday 4 panel coming up after 11 o'clock. We've got a great panel lined up, and we're going to hack through some of the uh, – Big stories of the week and some of the not so big stories, but we'll talk all about that. And don't forget at noon hour, it's our 12 o'clock talk back hour. All that and more coming up 
Larry Fedorik in for Mike Farrell. Here's special guest host, Larry Fedorik. It's the Friday Four panel, and welcome our panel. I'm uh, one of the panels. We have three others to make our Friday Four panel. Welcome the president of uh, uh, the Dune Pioneer Park, Yvonne Fernandez, is here. Hello, Yvonne. Morning. Morning, Larry. Good morning to you. We also have the chair of the uh, Waterloo Advisory Committee on Active Transportation, Janice Jim, is here. Hello, Janice. Hello. Good morning. And we have um, someone I've known for a number of years. I've been on the four panel with him before. The CEO of the museum, David Marscal, is here. David, good morning. Hey, Larry. Nice to see you again. You as well. You as well. Let's dive right in on some of the stories of the week. Number one, um, a Hockey Canada story. London police finally acting, um, requesting the appearance of five Former players of the 2018 Canadian Junior roster, charges will be pressed. Uh, what do we think, Yvonne? I'll start with you on this finally seeing some legal movement. Yeah, you know, I, I read through the article and and did a little bit of background stuff. And, you know, it's, it's hard to put words around what is happening here because it seems that <clears throat> there was some consensual activity sexual activity between the person named em and one of the hockey players but then things got got out of control hockey um canada made some agreement some some resolution but now it's coming up again i I guess my couple of my thoughts are one what are these young men thinking we're not back Mm -hmm. in the you know 1800s where people did this without even thinking about having any conscience or even whenever where was their conscious and conscience and and at what point did they ever think that this was going to be okay and 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 that they would get away with it i think what i i feel may have happened is when the young woman went home and started talking about what happened her parents were probably absolutely appalled and said you need you need to go further than this and so it'll be interesting to see what the press conference says uh, right. i think it's february 5th is the press london is london police are having a press conference um, then, I, mean, <clears throat> I think there's a lot to uncover and unpeel in this issue yeah. this idea of of six seven eight guys with one girl was probably a, uh, or le- supposedly a rite of passage within some junior hockey teams and even had a name at some point which is just shameful janice uh, your thoughts on finally the the legal moving on this? Yeah, I mean it's the right step, but it's reflection of the culture of misogyny we have uh, in in sports, and you know just the the actions are are a re- reflection of the entire culture of uh, male sports teams. Um, I'm glad that there's uh, things that uh, are happening to finally address this. But it's a reflection of, you know, the, the entire culture of the sports system and everything. Uh, and, they, they really need to a top level clean, clean the house on this. Uh, and I, I want to get to that. I want to get to yeah. that. But David, your thoughts first on, on this. Yeah, I, I think uh, everything, Yvonne, everything that's been said, I agree with. And I think it's important the police have finally acted. I mean, it's been five and a half years and it took a lawsuit for them to reopen the case, which in itself is not is unsettling. And mm-hmm. Batman from the NHL, he still has an open investigation. I don't think he's anywhere close. And again, we're five and a half years. So the powers to be have not taken this seriously. 
And, you know, cases like this are tough to convict at any time, let alone five years on. Um, and now five of these, four at least of these, are probably millionaires playing in the NHL. So I'm not sure if a criminal um, um, investigation can be settled out of court, but um, it will be very interesting uh, to see where this goes. Uh, ESPN has named the five players. Uh, I'm not going to name them. Um, some of them may have been under 18 at the time, so there's another reason not to name them. If you guys know the names, please don't mention them. But but the four players are currently active in the NHL. One is a former NHL or playing in Europe. So they they are playing and and making good money in the NHL and and after having allegedly committed this crime. So, uh, uh, Janice, do you think the culture has changed, though? I mean, we have – they did clean house at Hockey Canada. Uh, we do uh, have women's hockey doing well, which is, I think, helping in changing the culture. I mean, it's, it's a long process, right, like any anything. So there's steps being taken in the right direction. I know some uh, – I've heard of some junior hockey programs that build – in uh, educational components into them, like uh, education on like uh, consent uh, and like you know start uh, start the right culture, because uh, like you have to start you know with the junior hockey leagues uh, to teach you know teach the, the boys what's what's right and what's wrong and and you know address that from the from the from the basics. Yeah, I mean, this woman had every right to go out and even have a few too many drinks and decide on a guy and consent to a guy. She, that's fine. That was regardless of what we think of that. That's her right to do that. Then he did not have the right to invite five, six other guys into the room for sure. You know, it's, uh, do, but is it, is it changing? I'll put that to you as well, Yvonne. Uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it, I, I guess I, I have a daughter and I have two sons. If my if my daughter ever came home and told me something like this, I would be flabbergasted. But my sons were always told, you know, you have a sister, you have cousins who are girls, treat them how you want them, treat the girls you date the way you mm. would want your sister to be treated. Yeah. The way you want your niece, your cousins and, and your friends, because they had lots of, um, you know, friends who were of both genders. So that was my, that was my message to them always. Treat them like you would want your sister or somebody close to you to be treated. Don't ever think you can get away with something because it's going to come back. It will always come back. We'll pause on that. It's our Friday 4 panel. We're going to talk about interest rates and uh, inflation. Are we through this when we return on City News 570? I'm Larry Fedorik, in for Mike Farwell, Yvonne Fernandez, Janice Jim, and David Marskell make up the Friday Four panel today, and we move on to the topic of uh, interest rates. Bank of Canada held on interest rates uh, this week, which we thought they would do, and really no indication of when they might start to come down, although they were asked about that a number of times. Uh, all uh, their role in combating inflation. And uh, David Marscale, I'll start with you. Is this uh, is this working? It's what we expected on the interest rates, but uh, yeah. how, how are we doing on inflation, do you think? Yeah, well, it's just been so painful. There's so much negativity just generally, but a glimmer of hope um, that the Bank of Canada announced that they were holding, holding the line and then leak not leak but suggested that there might be some cuts in the near future so that might open the 
the trickle gates as opposed to the floodgates uh, in terms of people's confidence. And I think confidence is really key here. If the rates do go down a quarter point or some such thing in April, I think the housing market will take off again, and that'll help reduce rents as some of the immigration students coming in will help reduce rates. So I think there's some some very positive things, obviously, with the rates coming down. And, and we need something positive in the world between war and inflation and Trump and interest rates and cuts to the arts. Like, where does it end? I, I don't know. That's always when when somebody ends on that question, though, it always makes me nervous. Like, <laughs> oh, where does it end? Oh, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. No, but it's. You make a good point too about rents. We we often talk about the the people with mortgages and all that, but the the trickle down does uh, does affect renters and a lot of other people as well, based on rates. Janice, uh, yeah, I, I think I've always respected the Bank of Canada for taking a measured approach to things. Um, you know, it, it yeah, the economy is harsh for everyone, but you know they they keep a steady hand, and and I like the government for for doing that. And yeah, like. The housing market is definitely a huge, you know, issue in rental. Uh, with with the younger people, you know, our age, uh, we 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 don't even think about owning anything because we know it's not going to be affordable. Wow. Yeah, Yvonne. Well, I, I, my talk, my my thought process was really around um, the the increase in taxes, increase in water and sewer charges that that don't seem to be talked about nearly as much at the municipal level. Everybody says, oh, my property tax has gone up. They went up the rate of inflation. But there are other items that are affecting people every single day. Um, heat and water and sewer, which went up double the inflation rate, if I can recall correctly. And and so those are things that we just need to live. In Canada, we need heat and we need water so we can, we can cook and we can shower and we can flush our toilets. So... It's not, I think it's a real ripple effect. If we see costs, the inflation rate come down a little bit, but they're not going, they're never, municipalities are never going to bring down the water rates. They're never going to bring down the sewer rates. They're never going to bring down the property taxes. And those are things that are, are costing people every single day and have the ripple effect all across the, the communities. Well, perhaps a different topic, but we've been talking about that on the show, too, about the sources of revenue for cities and municipalities, regional uh, governments is mm-hmm. is so limited. And, uh, you know, perhaps more needs to be uploaded to the yeah. provincial government or other levels of government. Yeah. Or I, I, more money coming down from the, those levels uh, of government. <laughs> right. I, right. I agree on this one 100 percent. I mean, the the homelessness, the food banks, uh, the o- opioid crisis the municipal level of government cannot deal with this alone. It has to come from the upper tiers. I mean, I'm being parochial here. They can fix the arts community. They can sustain that for sure. But there are certain things that they can't. Uh, mm-hmm. They can't address alone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah. Like the uh, the money, the federal funding for Kitchener's uh, safe consumption site is going to be lost at the end of March. And no one's going to step in. So this this site like saves people's lives and helps address the issue. And they're going to run out of money and they don't know what they're doing. Uh, the Ford government needs to step in and, and provide funding because it's a provincial issue. It's not a federal issue. Yeah, for sure. The, I mean, go ahead, Yvonne, go ahead. Provincial is always taking care of our health. And and I think I think there's there's money there that we need to be using uh, and and putting into our healthcare in many many areas. Well, healthcare. There's there's another hour that we could just 
go on that, certainly, <laughs> because that's, there's so much going on there. There's so much going on there. I was just talking to Diane Freeman, who said uh, a third of uh, services provided by municipal governments right now are actually provincial jurisdiction. And that's that's a big load. That's a big load of uh, on finances. And again, where do you turn? You go to property taxes, you go to fees, water fees, et cetera, t- yeah. for revenue. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Um, but I mean, when I understand the, the interest rates and how they affect, you know, I said economics is not an exact science, but you're paying more for a mortgage, you're paying more for a property tax. If inflation's coming down, you're still hit with those two big costs. I don't know. It seems like a vicious circle to me. I, I, I think it is. I mean, we're certainly not going to see food costs coming down maybe until until we get back into our season of growing and people are able to grow some of their own food. But like I said, we won't see property taxes coming down. And, and so, you know, David, you're, you're concerned about the arts being supported, uh, but people want to have all their niceties. If their driveway, if their street doesn't get shoveled or plowed, that's the first thing they're screaming about, but there are other um areas that are also needed need funding and i think the arts are, are definitely one that people in need need to step up right? yeah I, thank you Yvonne. and like all great cities have pressures on them and some of the pressures we've talked about need to be uploaded and so on but great cities have great education from kindergarten to grade 12 and post-education and we do and great cities for the most part uh, or sorry have great infrastructure current infrastructure and for the most part we do we are way behind in arts and culture, and that's what great cities have. And that drives economic benefits, tourism. That's why you go to New York City, is to go to the museums and art mm. galleries and so on. So anyway, I'm a broken record on this one. <laughs> you are. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, it, it's uh, the calculation, it doesn't reflect, you know, the the, the way arts, uh, you know, contribute to our cities. It's, it's, and... there's no, there, it's hard to quantify it, but it does, like, contribute, arts and music. Uh, contribute so much you know to our cities to our humanity uh we'll take a short break it's our friday four panel back in a moment on city news 570 larry fedorkin for mike farewell friday four panel with janice jim david marscale yvonne fernandez and uh in our couple of minutes here i want to talk about reusable bags i was watching a story this week there was a un report out about these polypropene bags like you might cloth like like at walmart you have to use them 20 times for them to be effective against one plastic bag single-use plastic i i want to ask i'll start with yvonne how many how many reusable bags do you have and do you actually reuse them i have about 10 and yes yes i use them i have one little tiny one in my purse all the time and i bought my daughter and daughter-in-law's little tiny ones to stick in their purses all the time so that you've always got it see i I applied yeah. myself too, and I I never uh, I never forget them. I'm always on a mission. I always have a bag with me. Uh, how about you, Janice? Uh, yeah, well, I'm a cyclist, so I always have a backpack on me anyway. Ah. But yeah, I I have amassed a big collection of them. It's 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 kind of a shame with the plastic bylaw. It, it might be a little bit uh, mistargeted because, like you said, the resources required to make the bags are are out of control, and then I see see people using them like one time and throwing it out. So I think that the, the solution might be worse than the problem that it's designed to solve. I just don't think people apply themselves. They constantly hear, oh, I forgot it in the car. I forgot it at home. It's like, no, yep. reuse them. David, are you good at it? 
I'm 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 good at it. I'm not great at it. I mean, I would say 75% of the time I remember them. I do carry them in the car and and I have them on uh, but occasionally I will forget them. Uh, I do find it brutal that the grocery chains have been saving money not offering plastic bags and then they charge us 3 bucks for a reusable bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, they've gone from expense to profit on that one which is annoying plus they ask you to donate while they're making so much money but that's a whole different topic Um, (laughs) i i feel i have 50 of these bags because i've just amassed them whether it's from takeout food or or buying them along the way or being on a trip somewhere and not having them and so on there's a lot in my collection yeah yeah i've got i've got then i get some that are kind of unique or somebody actually gifted me one because it's got some cameras on it or something so i've got a collection of those and then i've got about 10 or 12 hard-working ones those are the ones that are in the closet in the car and nice. get used every week you know so i'm I'm still hoping it's better than the single-use plastic although you know janice to your point yeah there's a lot of them and 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 they don't recycle well either if, if people no, like they're they're yeah, they're they're just garbage, right? They they're not recyclable, and like you said, the resources that it takes to make one, you know, might be worse than making like a hundred plastic bags. So yeah, it's it's definitely a hard hard problem. Uh, innovative housing ideas for Kitchener Waterloo getting a lot of attention. That's going to be our next topic on the Friday Four panel right after our news here on City News Five Seventy. Here's special guest host Larry Fedoric. And I have but one panel in our Friday Four panel today with us. The CEO of the museum, David Marskell, is here. Chair of a Waterloo Advisory Committee on Active Transportation, Janice Jim, and the president of Dune Pioneer Park, Yvonne Fernandez. Welcome back, panel, for the second half of our Friday Four panel today. Uh, great discussion so far. Our next topic is housing. And and uh, actually, Yvonne told us before the show that if we get to talking on this, that it's all her and nobody else is going <laughs> to get a word in edgewise. Yvonne, is that correct? So the innovative idea for housing so far that I liked this week was that municipalities retain ownership of land that they already have, parking lot, repurpose a building, a vacant lot, and, and they retain ownership and build theoretically affordable housing there what do you think of that Yvonne? yeah that, that was the region that that came out with with that discussion and and certainly um you know if i look at conestoga college and i uh you know i i i went there i graduated twice from there um it was in what the ward that i represented when i was on council they have 13 maybe 14 parking lots Come on, folks, let's build some student housing on one of those parking lots because they sit empty a lot more than we need. When I bike through there, Janice, and I can, it's a clear shot to the, to the, uh, Walter, the trail going over to the Blair Creek, Blair uh, Road trail. But two things, the lower dune housing, uh, discussion. Again, no no respect for the heritage in lower dune. And, and those people in lower dune have been working for, years and years on raising the interest around the heritage, protecting the heritage homes. And we're not talking about going from a single family home to a couple of semis or small. It's a huge development. It's going to um, go, the height itself is going to look over a few single homes. And and that's that's not respective and, and representative of the way we want to build community. The other two um, uh, discussions were around property on New Dundee Road. New Dundee Road is 
incredibly busy as all of the traffic that's coming from the Dune South area, from the Fisher-Holman area access the 401. One of the things that shocked me when I watched the discussion was that in the transportation study, no discussion had been, or they were not aware that there is a truck stop, stop that will be located directly across from these 160 units. Now, how is that not, how is that missed? You're, one access hmm. for probably 300 cars, because let's face it, as much as we want to be a, a less car society, we still are. Those people living on New Dundee Road will want access to the 401. One access onto a two-lane New Dundee Road. Why are we not waiting to till the region does the four-lane extension that it's planning to do and be smarter about how this, I know we're in a housing crisis, but this is not just going to, this is not going to solve the housing crisis. And it's going to create more frustration. It's going to create a lot of animosity in the community. And I think it's going to be outright dangerous for how people are going to try and exit onto New Dundee Road. And then you've got a truck stop across from where people are going to live. Sorry, doesn't doesn't fly right. with me. And I'm glad I wasn't on council because I would have been saying absolutely not. Although I can see why you were on council for eight years. Those are, those are great you know, presentation, great points uh, oh, as well. Uh, uh, David? Yeah, and I think it was Scott Hamilton in Ward 7 of Cambridge who came up with the idea initially, and, and Cambridge Council said no. So I'm really, really pleased to see, and like kudos to Scott, like that's innovative thinking, and I'm just delighted that the region and, and City of Kitchener seem to be embracing it. Um, that's what we need from our politicians is with innovation and vision and, and thinking, as they say, outside of the box. And, you know, this is probably not a unique idea. Certainly it's not my idea, but above the malls and so on. There's so much space on these massive malls that are not tall. And, and that might help the malls stay in business because people can go downstairs to shop or for groceries or, or what have you. So we really do need some innovative thinking. I, I do think some of the other topic, topics we touched on um, around students coming in and how are they going to be serviced in terms of places to live. I think, uh, you know, the parking lots at Conestoga and other other universities are, are all prime locations. So I think it's a great idea. And again, I think Scott, who I've never met, I think uh, it's a congratulations if you're listening, Scott. Well, it's getting a lot of attention from other uh, regions as well as as a good idea. Janice, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, the, the housing issue is a huge crisis. Uh, we need to throw everything we have at it. And this is one step in the right direction. Uh, like Conestoga is a great example. They haven't built uh, any student housing to keep up with their enrollment. Uh, if you look at their stats, their enrollment has gone through the roof. And and when was the last time they built a residence right? Never. for their students? Exactly. And it's uh, like Yvonne said, it's creating a huge problem for for the neighborhood. And, you know, it's it's yeah, like they're not addressing they're not pulling their weight on on the issue at all. So definitely like build on parking lots, build, 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 build. You know, that's one way to address the problem. Well, and I've heard reports, too, not necessarily Kitchener-Waterloo, but reports where uh, the students have had to cancel, uh, you know, enrollments and things like that because they would they would arrive and have nowhere to live. And that's happening a lot of places. Well, the recruiters that are going to to these countries and, and bringing to these students here are not being honest and upfront. And, and certainly the Minister of Immigration talked about that this week. Uh, you can't be bringing people to a, a cold a country that has completely different uh, climate 
and and hope and pray that they're going to find some place to live. And they're sleeping, you know, four and five in, in these two bedroom apartments on the floors, uh, uh, you know, in doorways. If there's a fire, we're we're going to see some serious um, injuries and and possibly a death if we don't address the balance between international students and housing. We, that has to be addressed. Yeah, like I totally agree with Yvonne. Like we're we're lucky there hasn't been any tragedies because every you know I've run into a lot of Conestoga students. They're all sleeping, you know, five to like five to a basement, uh, things like that. Um, and and one of the you know and the, the they, they can't afford anything. Uh, I have one student message me, you know, he's like, do, do you have any job leads? Uh, I've been job hunting for a year and I haven't been able to find anything. And like, I, I, like I felt so bad because I, I don't have any help for him. And yeah, like uh, companies like apply board is, is one of the, the causes they're, they're promising this, you know, future in Canada that is not realistic. And, and the, the numbers they give them is not realistic at all. Like, they're like, oh, you could survive on ten thousand dollars a year. That's that was the old, you know, number that they gave, mm. and that is completely like unrealistic. That's why these students are are sleeping five to a basement. They're going to food banks. Uh, you know, like one one thing came up with tiny home takeout. They couldn't handle all the students that were using them for for food. You know, it's it's it's, it's a shameful. Right. You know, just uh, just on Conestoga. Sorry to to uh, talk over you there. Um, in fairness to Conestoga College, they've invested something like 10 or 12 million in a building um, that's empty and, and near the Brantford ca- campus and they're building housing there. They're doing it in Waterloo. They're building, taking over buildings and paying cash for them and putting in housing. So uh, before we throw them totally under the bus, it's not like they're not helping and doing doing their part to help solve this. All right, we'll stop there for a moment. Great discussion panel. It's the Friday 4 panel and we switch topics to... Uh, Getting Kids Outside, next on City News 570. Welcome back. Larry Fedorkin from Mike Farwell. And on the panel today, Yvonne Fernandez, Janice Jim, and David Marskell. And I was, uh, because I'd done some work and a podcast on this particular topic, I uh, was very interested in the Canadian Pediatric Society study that was released yesterday. And basically it said... We got to get our kids outside. Now, I don't think they use the term helicopter parenting, but that was the reference. Got to stop toddling and get the kids outside and get them speeding down the hill on a toboggan and let them climb a tree so they scrape a knee. So what? It leads to more autonomous, better youth, teenager, and adult. Um, David, what do you think? Is it is are, are we through with the protecting our kids and get them back outside playing and, and roughhousing? I, I would, I'm not a gambler, but I would think we're going to have some unanimity in this conversation. I mean, of course, children should be outside. Of course, they should be experiencing things that are not on a screen. They need to play. They need to fall down and get up and try again. I mean, there's just so many lessons and, uh, and, um, and, free, and again, freedom from that, that screen. And, uh, you know, children that were born in the last, whatever generation I'm talking about, um, they've only had the screen in front of them. And they, uh, you know, their ability to have a, a conversation and look one in the eye is being diminished. And uh, yeah, they kids need to be outside. So do parents. Yeah, good point. Yeah, absolutely agree. Agree. Who wants to go next on this one? 
I'll, I'll go, but I, I don't want to overwrite. Janice, talk over me if I start going too far. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, a parent of three and now a grandparent of four. And, it, you know, my son has two little ones out in Edmonton, uh, just south of Edmonton, and it was blinking cold, but he still takes them outside. And and he, he said, they need fresh air. And even my granddaughter said to me yesterday, Oma, we going to go outside and have a walk and get some fresh air. And she's just turned four. So I've obviously imprinted my outside. I'm a gardener. I'm a cyclist. I'm a cross-country skier. So that's where my um, my heart is happiest is if if we're outside. So I'm obviously giving that to our children, grandchildren. We if we don't allow them to have risks now as a former educator, the kids that fell down on the playground, they they were fine. If they don't do risks when they're young children, they will take greater risks as teenagers and we'll see a, more, a significant impact on health and hospitalization you you don't you you break and get um healed quicker when you're five than you do when you're 65 so we'll we'll see yeah in some cases already have seen the consequences janice yeah i mean uh you can't quantify the psychological impact of uh outdoors you know it's it's hard to add up but it's it's a huge thing like yeah like the avon said like cycling, walking, fresh air, the sunlight, like everything, it uh, contributes a lot to uh, mental health and 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 uh, uh, physical health and well-being. And like, yeah, with like uh, David said, with the screens, it you know it's it's definitely changing the way a uh, whole generation uh, interacts with people and and how they are. So definitely, you know, bring back bring back you know the, the outdoors. Like it's it's got to be a huge component for everybody. Yep, definitely. definitely. Um, I told a story yesterday quickly. Lenore Skinozzi, columnist in New York City for the Post, I think, and she had a nine-year-old. They were downtown together in New York City. This is about 2015, and uh, it was time to go. He didn't want to leave, so she gave him some quarters. He didn't have a cell phone. Quarters for the phone. She gave him a $20 bill, a subway map, and some subway tokens, and be home by 5 o'clock, and he had to take the subway home by himself. And when he got home, he, she was worried, but she decided this was good for him. He was so empowered and emboldened. It was the greatest thing in his life that he was able to do this himself. And she eventually wrote about this in the paper. And the next day, the Internet called her the world's worst mom. <laughs> How dare you let a nine-year-old ride the subway and take the bus on his own in New York City? So she started something called Free Range Kids. And it's it. it's part of that, yeah, where it's just... Let the kids be, let them play, let them do things, let them let them use the stove, walk the dog by themselves, play with each other. You know, I think it's, that's always great to see the study because I thought, okay, more of that is happening. Oh, my daughter lived in New York. Uh, yeah. There's actually a whole Japanese show. Uh, I forgot what it's called, but you can look it up. They uh, they have little kids and they send them on tasks to do in ta- around town and even taking the transit. And they have a, a camera crew, like just secretly, like kind of follow them and film them. So that's exactly what you're talking about. It's right, like right. fascinating to watch, like how how much they can do. Like we, we don't give them the, the the like you know we don't give them credit for their capacity. Mm-hmm. Like young kids are capable for of a lot. Yeah, we'll take a break there and come back with our final topic on the Friday Four panel. This is City News Five Seventy. 
I'm Larry Fedorkin for Mike Farwell. And on our Friday 4 panel at the uh, just before uh, 11.30, just before noon, I've kind of saved the shorter time periods for, you know, like reusable bags like we talked about last half hour. And this this few minutes here, I just want to do movies, guys. And I'll, I'll, I'll start with David. Uh, movies, Oscar nominations out this year. Seen anything or planning to see anything like that you missed, like an Oppenheimer, but whatever it is. So um, it's a big tr- uh, Christmas tradition. I see a ton of movies. I'll talk fast because we're running out of time. So I've seen most of them. Wow. In order, countdown, my top three. Number three, four things. Wild Ride, fantastic acting, great, great story. Number two, Holdovers, wonderful story. Paul Giamatti should win. So many great acting uh, roles there. And the number one, in my opinion, is out of France called Anatomy of a Fall. It is wonderful. It is something that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Um, a lot of good things out there this year, but those three are my wow. top. Well, wow. those those three on my list of I, I want to see them. So I, I I hear you on those three. Uh, Yvonne? I haven't seen any of them. I'm not a big moviegoer. <laughs> I'm, I'll be one of those people that once the academies are over, I think, well, yeah, that, that looked interesting. And I'm a anything to horror anything to thriller i'm like so i'm a big baby yeah yeah every horror horror movie i ever watched was me (laughs) talking to my wife going okay what happens now can i (laughs) yeah well david david's got great taste uh yeah i I definitely have to watch those i haven't seen the smaller ones uh but yeah definitely oppenheimer and barbie uh barbie got snubbed uh it's a shameful you know another reflection of uh you know how the academy does not respect female, uh, you know, create creators. Uh, mm-hmm. Like it's shameful, the director did not get the nomination. And then I like the smaller Asian movie, uh, pa- Past Lives. I think I forgot what. It's, yeah, that's a that's a un, that's a gem. And they should also have gotten more nominations for their uh, creative uh, staff. I heard I, I heard a reversal on that, Janice. That um, yeah. a lot of um, of uh, people of color, ethnicity, and so on, did get nominated mm. at the expense of Barbie. So it was a good thing. Right. I yeah, no, it's it's definitely very tricky. It's very tricky for sure. Well, but this just, has been really fun, Larry. And who's going to tell Mike it's more fun when he's not here? <laughs> Are we still live? Uh-oh. I think we should all write a letter. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We all love Mike. Um, the uh, great titles, guys, uh, and a great conversation. I enjoyed it. David Marscale, CEO of the museum. Thank you. Uh, Janice Jim is chair of uh, Waterloo Advisory Committee on Active Transportation. Thank you. And Yvonne Fernandez, president of Dune Pioneer Park. Thank you all. You're welcome. Thank you. That's great. Everybody. Great chat. Thank you. All right. Friday 4 Bye. panel uh, for uh, the uh, 26th here. Coming up next, you will hear Mike Farwell next because he's on the road with the Rangers. So, of course, he's going to take <laughs> care of Coach's Corner and talk to Coach uh, UC Hocus. Coming up next, and then we'll have our talk back hour. That's all coming up on City News 570. Here's special guest host, Larry Fedorik. But of course, on Friday, we do a little coach's show, coach's corner. I know it's not coach's corner. It's the coach's show, Larry. And uh, uh, we're going to do that in, in, in a minute here because we do have Mike Farwell in a conversation with uh, UC of uh, UC Ohokas, head coach of the Rangers. So we'll get to that in a second. But Jersey Bill is calling, so we got a minute here before we go to the coaches show. Go ahead, Jersey Bill. 
Hello. Yes. Hey, Hello. go ahead. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, listen, uh, yeah, I just uh, I just want to mention uh, some of the crazy stuff happening south of the border. It just it just seems to me that the longer this goes on, it uh, it just seems that um, I, I'm certainly hoping that um, way above fifty percent of the voters in November will will not want to deal with uh, all of these irregularities of Mr. Trump and all of his his absolute bordering on craziness uh you know well, and i i realize I that his, his, yeah his his main argument now is um uh, all you crazy people out there look uh, vote for me i'm one of you i'm one of the crazies um and i just hope that <laughs> that the um, average voter of the united states is um, is more sound than that or the majority of them are more more mentally sound than that and uh, and will keep the uh, united states from uh, being uh, i guess uh, certifiable you and me both, man. Thank you. Um, Robin Williams. Robin Williams once said, Canada, you're a great country. It's too bad you live above a biker bar, uh, which is sometimes feels like that. All right, we'll get to more of your calls and all of that. Uh, but let's get to our regular Friday coaches show. Mike Farwell on the road with the Rangers uh, in the Sioux tonight. And this is the weekly conversation with the head coach of the Rangers, UC Hocus. Here's Mike. You see, just thinking back on that game last Saturday in London, have you ever seen a game like that, been a part of a game like that before? No, not really. A little bit close. Or when I played myself over here in North America, then I've been. But, but uh, yeah, yeah, it was a little bit different. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. What do you take away from a weekend like that? What can you learn from a couple of games like that? Uh, first of all, we didn't. We we're near it. Our best, our defending wasn't there. Uh, but you need to push back. You, can, you have to push back if you want to keep going, and you can't take take other other teams' violence violence against us. You have to push back. But uh, but yeah, it was it's a it was ba- two bad games from us for sure. Do you have faith in this group that it does have that pushback? Oh yeah, we 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 do, and uh, every team has uh, on the season like times when we're not when the game's not on its best, but we have to get get back on track. Is this point right now the most adversity that your team has had to face so far this season? Yeah, I, I guess yeah. We have quite many injuries and guys out, but. Uh, that's hockey and uh and then you kind of have to go through them and you just have to keep playing keep playing and then uh some other guys have to just step up do you do anything differently as a coach how do you approach uh you know a weekend like this when you have five defensemen for example tonight Mm, well we have to be smart how we play uh but uh smart and system wise a little bit but otherwise you can't really do we have still five five d and 12, 12 forwards so you can play a hockey game easily with that you're up against some of the uh, best teams in the western conference from starting last week with those games versus london is this a good good way to find out where your team is at well uh i see when we have the full full lineup then we see where we at but uh now uh, you kind of have to understand 
what's your lineup and then you have to play play that you have a chance to win still like it doesn't every game we go to win and uh, you have to play smarter but I wouldn't judge uh, or look at where we at right now from how we play or how how the team does like there you have to be like understand the who all, who all we're missing or or are we well but then again some guys can jump up and it can be a really good thing for us you've got guys here i mean arquette's done well when he's in the lineup for you you've seen mcneil before and how do you feel about the way diracolo is coming along well they're stepping up uh, and really good that young boys they get chances like this and also our other 16 year olds they get a lot of chances uh for like in the long run when we think about it like London didn't have any one 16 year old in the lineup we had we had four then you think today again now we'll have uh, plenty of them and it's like putting money on the bank <laughs> what do you need to see from your team against Sault Ste. Marie tonight well we have to we have to defend really hard we have to be win the battles and especially against two we have to be smart there they're a good offense team so we have to we have to defend really really well and be smart with the puck like puck management has to be has to be really good they play a pretty up-tempo game do you expect a a fast game tonight oh yeah it'll be a fast game for sure uh but we have to kind of take the take the pace down thanks for this good luck in the game thank you there you have the uh, coach's uh, interview, the coach's show, the uh, Friday noon hour weekly chat during Rangers season with Mike Farwell, who is uh, the guy to be talking, of course, the voice of the Rangers, the expertise there with uh, uh, UC Hocus, the head coach of the Rangers. And uh, as, as they alluded to, and we've been t- telling you all day, I'll tell you one more time, game tonight, pregame starts at 635 with Mike and uh, Paul. And uh, just after 7 o'clock, the puck drop. Uh, Go Rangers, go in the Sioux tonight. So it's back to the 12 o'clock. Talk back. What is on your mind? What do you want to talk about? We'll take your calls when we return here on City News 570. Not uh, only is it the talkback hour, but it's Friday, so All Request Fridays, the Mike Farwell initiative, is on as well. So this music that we play coming back into a segment is called Bumper Music, and we we uh, uh, Mike does this Friday thing where he lets you request the music. And we had a few requests in today. This one from Mark, requesting birthday by the Beatles, and it's Mark's birthday today, so... That's likes the song and it's his birthday and there it is. Uh, and that's brilliant on the Beatles part. If you think about it, like uh, that's what I would do. If I could write songs, I'd write a cool birthday song and then I'd write a Christmas song. Cause then twice a year, you're probably assured of getting royalty checks. Well, no, I guess more than twice a year. Cause if it's a generic birthday song, it would be just, everybody would play it all the time. Cause you know, there you go. And I mean, B- birthday by the Beatles and happy birthday, the classic um, royalty free song 
is uh, are the two big birthday songs. Anyway, happy birthday, Mark. And uh, there was your uh, All Request Friday song for you. And let's get to some of our calls here in the talkback hour. Here's George. Go ahead. Hey, Larry. First and foremost, I want to thank you. I mean, you come in these two days. You uh, entertain us. You inform us. You make us laugh with your witty humor. I love it. I love hearing you whenever you're on. Well, thank you, George. That's that's so nice. Uh, really, man, I appreciate that. And now regarding the Rangers, uh, Larry, I think they've got a bit of a tough go ahead of them. They've got some tough teams up. Uh, they're not full, what do you call it, full lineup. So I am mm-hmm. concerned about the Rangers over the next, what, maybe week or so. I hope they don't lose this ground. They were doing so well. So we'll have to see what happens in the next uh, four or five days. Uh, for sure, for sure. I mean, yeah, like you said, with, with uh, suspensions, injuries, all this kind of stuff, it's got to kind of wait to get back. But they got yeah. some depth, you know. Yeah. Okay, that's all I wanted Thanks, to say. Thanks, George. All right, man, cool, cool. Appreciate the call. Appreciate the call. This is the uh, 12 o'clock talkback hour, so we're counting on you to talk back whatever is on your mind. Big stories of the week, something we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about. Like, we almost avoided me filling in for two days. We almost avoided an entire two days of not talking about Trump, which I don't mind. It's just, you know, after a while. So Jersey Bill chimed in on that. So, you know, we're getting a lot of variety. What do you want to say? 519-570-2545. 519-570-2545. Toll free is 1-800-570-5715. And then star 570 on your cell on the talk back hour because um, – as always, it's been, you know, a lot has happened um, uh, this week, and there's something you may want to comment on, or as I said, something we haven't commented on that you may want to uh, talk about as well. I started the show talking about this this really international story that I don't feel probably you or I are going to be chatting about with the family at the dinner table today uh, unless we are involved ethnically somehow where it means more to us, but the International Court of Justice at The Hague uh, it's an important story, certainly, but uh, they came down with their decision today, which was almost a mm, a non-decision. I said earlier, this particular court has no actual uh, legal jurisdiction or uh, methods of enforcement. So it's certainly another level of international politics, uh, although it's legally binding. So if they they did not say ceasefire in Gaza, if they had not legally binding. So, and, and and if it was, how would they enforce it? It's it's really interesting, which has bothered me about the United Nations ever since I first learned about it in school, ever since post-World War II when they formed the League of Nations, which morphed into the United Nations over all these years. It's, um, uh, I always, you know, say if you could become ambassador to the United Nations like Bob Ray, what a great job, you know, uh, pay well, you live in New York, uh, you know, access to all the power players and you don't really have to do anything. Well, I mean, you do, you go to work. I'm not saying Bob Ray doesn't work hard or any ambassador or delegate to the UN doesn't work hard, but for, to what end? I just, I just. Don't get unless the UN actually had some teeth and and the International Court of Justice actually has some teeth. Why are we 
throwing all these resources and money and people and the time and energy into it if it's just um, their decision today. Part of it was the Israel had to do more uh, for um, um, human uh, um, re- what's the word I'm looking for? Human resources relief um, going in aid and relief going into the area, and like yeah, everybody should be doing more for aid and relief going into the area. So that's. That's a court told us that it's it's bizarre. Anyway, we want to talk about that. Anything else? It's up to you. We'll return with more of your calls here on the twelve o'clock talk back hour in a moment. City News five seventy. So does the uh, All Request Fridays, where you request the music that we use to come back into a segment. Uh, Gripper, thank you for the request. Smoke on the Water, Deep Purple. Smoke and Walter, the fire engine guy. My favorite uh, misheard lyric, I think, of all time is that one. Smoke and Walter. I think everybody calls it, calls it that now, mostly more than Smoke on the Water. Uh, Gripper, thanks for the request. It is the 12 o'clock Talk Back Hour. Let's get to the Talk Back. And uh, here's Kyle. Kyle, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Larry, for filling in the next couple of days. Um, we're talking about the whole Justin Trudeau and the, you know, remember how they said it was unconstitutional for what he did during the protest, shutting down bank accounts and stuff, right, for, for Canadians uh, having the right to protest? Um, yeah, un- unreasonable, I think, was the word, but they implied that it was against the charter as well, yeah. Correct. Why are we not going after those, and I'm not a Trudeau fan, so I just want to put that out there, I'm not a Trudeau fan, um, but, you know, when you see protests where he's sitting down for dinner time, or someone's skating on the rink, and you got people that are showing up to his dinner time, and protesting on what's going on in the in in, in Israel and the and Gaza and stuff, that is that not a security threat? Like when you have people bombarding and showing up to his dinner time when he's having dinner and swarming that prime minister, that's a security a national security threat, is it not? So why aren't we charging those people or, or freezing those bank accounts for supporting a terrorist organization out in the Middle East? Versus those Canadians that are here uh, fighting for their rights in, in Canada alone, like like yeah. when you see when I see Olivia Chow, and I'm again I'm not an Olivia Chow fan, but when I see people swarming her, and uh, you you got all these mass protests every day about you know Gaza and Palestine and swarming uh, Trudeau and, and all these that's that's a national security threat, and and in my eyes, the the the, the rhetoric of back and forth is ridiculous. So that's what I got to say. It's a national security threat in my mind. And honestly, if it was me, those people should be just as charged um, for 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 what they're doing uh, during the prime minister and having dinner and stuff. I mean, I mean, to to me, there's there's a huge difference between going out to the parliament and protesting versus forming the prime minister at dinner time, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and stuff like that. Right. So that's what I just got to say there, Larry. But anyway, thanks for filling in and uh, have a good weekend, my friend. Thank you, and thanks for the call and good points. Uh, there was a guy, remember that guy last year, a few months ago, uh, basically accosted in a threatening manner, uh, Christopher Freeland, 
uh, in Alberta, telling her to go back home, which is odd because she's from Alberta. But it was just her and, a, and an aide walking uh, across a hallway to an elevator to go to their next meeting. And he was there, I guess it was a, a public lobby or something, but he was he was there um, and, and somewhat threatening. I don't know why, I guess, in Canada, increasingly, uh, leaders of parties and members of parliament and and political elected political officials down the line are are receiving threats and it's it's not just the united states it's part of a what's happening in the world which is how do you increase security for all of these people i think the difference between and i know kyle mentioned the emergencies act but the difference between a, a large group of people whether you think it was reasonable or unreasonable that the emergency act was used one was a large group of people one is one or two people um and and that's where one or two people and i agree probably should be arrested if they're you know i i don't believe you should be going to the the uh leader's home uh while they're having dinner i don't i think you should be um protesting at the seats of parliament and government and and a, a constituency office maybe something like that but not at their home and not at their at their at their private time you know but it's one or two individuals that you can deal with as opposed to a large group of protesters, which is which is different. I think there is a difference there, nevertheless. Uh, once again, it's the Talkback Hour, 519-570-2545, 1-800-570-5715, star 570, toll free uh, uh, or free on your cell phone. More of your calls in a moment. Here's special guest host, Larry Fedorik. And also, all request uh, Fridays where you request the music we use coming back in. This is from Nathan, one of my favorites, questioned by the Moody Blues. Let's hear some of this for a bit. I love this. tempted to play the whole thing, but then this wouldn't be a talk show, would it? Uh, boy, Moody Blues, I tell you, it was a big band for me growing up, Moody Blues. And in the 80s, they had a bit of a resurgence. They had a couple of hit records, and they played the Kingswood Music Theater. Uh, the Fix, boy, there's a band, huh? What about the... They, they actually, if you don't know The Fix, they had one thing leads to another. They actually have been using that song on commercials lately, so... You know, write a good song, make some money. But anyway, I went to see the Moody Blues uh, in the 80s, even though I kind of loved them in the late 60s and early 70s. And it was it was cool. Uh, by the way, and here's a little bit of trivia. Uh, the, the the head of the Moody Blues is a guy named Justin Hayward. And he'd be 70-something now. I don't know. But he's got a, um, he's got a YouTube channel or a podcast. If you look it up. And it's, it's, uh, what is it? It's got a weird name, like Justin Time or something or whatever. But it's, 
And he's by himself in his home studio, which is like massive, like the biggest toy you could have is this home studio. And he's got all the Moody Blues songs on computer with the split tracks and everything. And he explains a song to you. And then it, then the cool part of this, it cuts to him live playing with like, um, there, I think there's a woman on violin. There's maybe a keyboard, maybe a drummer. I can't remember. It's like a nice, simple three, four piece band. And he plays the Moody Blues song that he's, uh, that he talks about. Oh, I know what it's called. It's called Tuesday Afternoons with Justin Hayward because Tuesday Afternoon was a big Moody Blues song. And if so, if you're a fan, seek him out. It was really interesting because he's still got the voice, he's still got the guitar chops. Uh, it's just all these years later, and he just reviews all the songs. So if it was a band that was important to you, look that up, and I think you'll uh, you'll enjoy that. Uh, let's get back to talkback uh, hour here on Friday. Here's Terry. Terry, go ahead. Hey, hi, Larry. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, quickly, I. You know, you you can say what you like about Donald Trump. I'm not a big fan of his, but you have to admit he does provide great entertainment value. It, it's, well, yes, I know what you mean, and I'll agree with that. Never, sure, Never yeah. a dull moment. Yeah, yeah. I know in the uh, 11 o'clock segment there, the uh, the four, the panel four, you were talking about uh, how kids don't, don't go out anymore. They just sit at home. I, I'm, I'm worried that in 20, 30 years, we're going to have like this... Uh, obesity and diabetic epidemic going on because nobody gets goes out anymore i I, you know i understand that there's so much to do inside the home now you know you got all 700 tv stations you got internet you got this that everything i mean growing up who wanted to sit at home and watch three t uh, three channels of black and white tv we were always Mm -hmm. out we didn't want to sit at home but uh yeah i mean we we complain now about the health care system and how it's crumbling I, i'd hate to think what's going to happen in about you know 20 years or so i mean uh i don't expect like this is just my opinion I, I can't see the life expectancy to increase because people just don't go out i was sitting at uh i won't say the name but a fast food outlet last sunday morning just having a breakfast sandwich and a coffee and i couldn't believe every two three minutes of one of these people coming in you know the big the cooler bags they come in to pick up food I couldn't believe my eyes. Who who would sit at home and order like fast food? Like, it's just crazy. Nobody wants to leave their homes anymore. And yeah. e- <laughs> e- e- even growing up in school, you'd see maybe you know two or three kids that were kind of overweight. Now it's like you're sitting behind a school bus and you see the kids getting on the bus, and I'm sure over fifty percent of them are kind of you know big. So I you know we're, we're headed for a disastrous situation if we don't. Uh, I mean, how, how do you tell kids to, to go out when they got all this entertainment inside the home? But uh, they have to come up with something to motivate kids to get out, you know, out of their houses yeah. and or and go out and play. It's just uh, weird. Anyway, Larry, uh, I thought Thanks, Terry. Have, have a have a good weekend. You too, man. Uh, it's great. You know what? I hate to break it to you, Terry. Happening now. Not it's not twenty thirty years away. The, the connectivity has been around for thirty years. I said this earlier. Google's thirty years old. Facebook is around twenty. Smartphones, as we know them, are around fifteen. There's there's a an entire generation and a half that knows no other thing but connectivity and the whole world on a phone in your pocket. So that's already happening. Uh, Last year, the Surgeon General of the United States issued an advisory on the epidemic of loneliness. Uh, The more connected we are, the lonelier we are because we avoid actual human contact. We're, We're connecting on screens and things, and it's not the same. It's virtual. Virtual is almost real. It's not real. 
the obesity epidemic is is crazy. If you watch um, TV, regular TV for for uh, a couple of hours, especially on the news channels, uh, what are the ads? Uh, Jenny Craig, Weight Watchers, uh, Golo, uh, Roe. Um, uh, oh, I'm missing a bunch of them, but they're all. You know, occasionally, occasionally an ad for Peloton, but that involves exercise. I'd rather take uh, Ozempic, uh, take a pill and lose weight. The obesity epidemic is already here. It's, and so is the loneliness epidemic. And it's all because of connectivity. Oh, like some say, yeah, that's the big culprit. No, it's the culprit. It's the big culprit. It's here already. So that's why there are groups of people advocating, including the Canadian Pediatric Society, for getting outside. I had, when we started out, I, I know this is going to sound old, I don't care. We had one channel in our little town for a long time, and then we had two. My mother had to chase me outside because I, was, I, I would be there all day. I don't care. Uh, so I think that's step one. Parents, take them outside with you. If not, chase them out uh it's it's to the point where we we and i don't know all the answers terry but you bring up a good point i don't know what we're supposed to do but we have to do something get kids back outside get them playing with each other and get them to toboggan and be active and do all those kinds of things even if we have to make it a rule force them right we're never going to have the days of gone in the morning be back for dinner i'm out all day on my own i don't know if we're going to get back to that it's not prudent but somewhere in between of, of being out on our own and a- active and playing with each other and off the screen uh, has to be mandated in order to avoid, uh, uh, you know, disaster, uh, an early and lonely grave, man. I mean, uh, I, I agree. So here's just the Canadian Pediatric Society, one group or another group that's saying, yeah, get get the kids outside. It's the uh, Talk Back Hour. More of your calls in a moment. City News 570. Larry Fedorik in from Mike Farwell today. Mike traveling with the Rangers and hear him tonight on the pregame at 635 with the Rangers in the Sioux. Here is Rudy. Rudy, go ahead. You're on City News on the Talk Back Hour. Great. Good to talk to you. You have it right. The thing isn't with the kids. It's the parents got to get them out. Get off your iPhone. Get outside. Get off the Facebook. Get outside. I have a six-year-old grandson. He loves getting outside. He doesn't want to be inside during the day. And in the summer, he likes fishing with his dad. And uh, my daughter takes him out to the forest because he loves nature. And that, that's the thing. The kids like to do something. But they need parents to get them out there, like you said. That's the thing. The yeah. Parsing- the problem partially started when the Ontario government said when the COVID was there, oh, don't go outside. We don't need people outside. Nobody got COVID from being outside. Too much circulation there. So the thing is, get the kids outside and be active. Yeah. Go for you know, one of the group. Well, one of the great things you said, Rudy, was at six years old, he's already enjoying this stuff. So he must have been already learning to enjoy it by three and four and stuff, you know, never too early to start. Absolutely. Get him out there. He loves nature. So that's the thing. You got to get them out there. Yeah, he started early for sure. Uh, Thanks for the call, Rudy. Great point. Yeah. Another reaction to that Canadian Pediatric Society report yesterday, yesterday, the advisory of um, get the kids outside and let them let them play and let them um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? It's it's let them have adventures. Obviously, not hazardous, but adventurous. You know, um, and and you have to judge that. Of course, you wouldn't let them play in traffic or on broken playground equipment. But you, as a parent, have to assess the situation and go, yeah, you know what? They they can run around on their own out here, or I can. I don't have to ride the toboggan downhill with them. I can just push them down there and let them walk back up, you know. Um, and and so you may, and you know you put a helmet on, like we say. We we never had bike helmets. We never had tobogganing helmets. Mm, okay, maybe that's the compromise. It's like you get out tobogganing. I'll put a helmet on you, but you go down on your own. Um, you know, I there's safety. I don't I don't want to go back. You know, the the uh, we think about some of the things we used to do when we were kids and you're like, Oh my God, how, how did we live? The, the answer is one or two of us didn't. So we reacted and said, okay, no more of this, or you need to wear a helmet or you need. And, and in some cases we overreacted. And then of course, with connectivity, which changed the world, we, uh, here we are, you know, and, and connectivity and the screens aren't all bad. You know, some screen time can be great. And some of those games and, Meeting people and stuff can be fun. It's just not the only thing. We have to increase the actual human content or contact rather and content, I guess. Right. Yeah. So, and it starts real early. It starts real early. I'm glad to see that when you, you know, if you enjoy something as a kid, you're going to do it when, when you're a little kid, you're going to do it when you're four and when you're six and when you're 10 and when you're 16 and when you're 25 and when you're 55, you're going to be enjoying it. And I think that's better. But anyway. Uh, that's just me. That's just me. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I think that report got a lot of reaction. It's the 12 o'clock talk back hour. What else do you feel you'd like to talk about, uh, in our remaining moments of this hour? It's 519-570-2545-519-570-2545-1-800-570-5715-1-800-570-5715 is absolutely toll free. Star 570 on your cell. Got a little football to watch this weekend. That'll be interesting. If anybody has any predictions there, the NFL down to four teams. I wouldn't mind seeing the uh, Mahomes, Kelsey, Taylor Swift team <laughs> do it another year. Uh, only because I kind of like the spirit of the Chiefs. But, you know, you hope for the Detroit Lions. There's that. I was thinking the other day, you know, every January, I've seen enough Januaries in my life where I kind of know the routine. January, post-holidays, uh, blah, 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 what happens? There's usually about three or four things that happen to get us through. And I think they're put in January, February specifically to help us through these these gray months, these winter months. One is there's always the Consumer Electronics Show in L.A., all the new toys. We're just talking about getting outside, but a lot of new toys. Then uh, somewhere every city has um, uh, uh, has one or an access to an auto show, the auto show. There's always a boat show. There's always uh, Valentine's. There's the NFL, and uh, Super Bowl, and there's um, the Oscars. And those are the kind of events, well, I guess St. Patrick's Day too, where we, we pack in the distractions in those two months to help us get us through uh, winter. So participate where uh, where you see fit and where you enjoy. Uh, more of the talk back hour on City News 570 in a moment. Be right back. 
Larry Fedorik in for Mike Farwell. Mike is on the game tonight, pregame 635, and he'll be back, of course, on the show on Monday. But in the talkback hour, let's go to Ken. Hello, Ken. Hey, Larry, You're on City how are News you? 570. I'm good. How are you? Good. And I uh, just want to say hi to Mike and uh, go Rangers, go. All right. And, and it's going to be Detroit and Kansas City in the Super Bowl with Detroit winning. That would be a great matchup, I think, for me. As much as I'd like all the teams are pretty good at this level at this point, four teams, I think that would be a great matchup for a Super Bowl, Ken. I know. And my team was out long ago. <laughs> What's your team? What's your team? What's your team? Cowboys. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Hey, you, you, you missed one thing when you mentioned all these other sports things that's going on. Okay. It's car racing, buddy. Car racing. Um, yeah, that's true. But when when is when like what kind of car racing do you like? Do you like open wheel stock car? What do you what do you really go for? I love them all, but it's usually NASCAR. And tomorrow, Saturday at one o'clock is the twenty four hour Rolex at Daytona. Oh, okay. And then in two weeks is the big one, the Daytona five hundred. That's that's NASCAR. They start with the Super Bowl. They the Super Bowl is their opening game, which is Daytona, yeah. right? Five hundred. Oh, I, yeah, I love it. I just, yeah. I just don't, don't, don't anybody bother me on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, my brother is a huge gearhead, and I, I'm embarrassed that I didn't know that. That that was you're absolutely right. Part of that January way, a way to beat the January February blahs, all those things I mentioned, plus plus NASCAR starting to rip big time. That's huge. Oh, yeah, I've gone to a few races uh, other than uh, – I usually go to Michigan every year because they're close to us. Yeah, yeah, those are good. My my brother's gone to a few. I, I haven't gone with him yet, but one of these times, one of these years we will. Oh, but, you should go because you'll be hooked. <laughs> uh, Ken, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Say hi to Barbie. Um do you know that Ken is a word in the English language? It's one of my favorites. I, I drop it occasionally like a smart ass. Uh, Ken, uh, K-E-N, is the area of knowledge in a particular field is your Ken. So if somebody said to me, hey, Larry, w- w- what about quantum physics? I'd go, that is outside of my Ken. I could just say that. And I'll pass that along as a little word of the day, word I learned thing. But anyway... Uh, thank you for uh, letting me fill in for Mike Farwell and uh, sticking with me and calling and uh, being part of the show. Uh, always enjoy being on City News 570. I'm Larry Fedorik. We'll talk soon.